Here is a reminder from the American Medical Association. Games, games. Here's some games. Games that want to get out. See? More games. Don't pour sulfuric acid on your genitals. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I didn't truly are. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I lived through the Black Plague, and I had a pretty good time during that. I've seen The Exorcist about 167 times, and I keep getting funnier every single time this I see This is the Nerd Words Podcast. You guys care to comment? What do you mean, like, fine shit? On utilitymuffinlabs.com. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Nerd Words Podcast. My name is Nathan, and today I'm going to be sharing with you a very special episode of the Nerd Words Podcast. Just a couple of days ago, Bob and I were guests on the Dead Game Society podcast, and we talked about Vampire the Masquerade for two and a half hours. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast. We hope you enjoy it, and check out Dead Game Society's website, and check them out on Facebook. Links will be in the description on our page. You're listening to the Dead Game Society podcast, the show where we talk all about games and game editions no longer in print. At the Dead Game Society, we play with dead things. And welcome back. It's episode number 45 of the Dead Game Society podcast. My name's Chad Parrish. I'm your host. And Corey, the Vorpal Chainsword Scanlon, is not with us today because he is off in sunny Jamaica, enjoying the beach, sunshine, and apparently from his photos he sent me back. He's gaming on the beach. So good job, Corey. Uh, <laughs> way to represent, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, but you know what? Never fear, because today's episode is going to be another deep dive into a game that I actually played a good deal of back in college, but I have not really. That was a long time ago, man, and I haven't played it much since then, but I have been listening, just totally binge listening to this new podcast, which is called... uh, 25 Years of Vampire, The Masquerade, a retrospective by Nathan Seaver and Robert Baton on, and you can catch that on Apple Podcasts, but Nate and Bob, and that's what I'm going to call them, and they have a wonderful pipe. Before we get into the game, and obviously we're going to be talking about vampire for our one fan out there of multiple dis- <laughs> multiple personality disorder, but before we get into that, real quick, hey guys, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. And welcome again, by the way, because to our one fan out there, you may not know this, but we this is our second attempt because yeah, we, guess what? <laughs> right after I said great things about Zencaster, it stopped recording. So we're actually going through this again. But you know what? That's actually not a bad thing because I started thinking about this. Uh, and you know what? I never got a chance. Tell us before we even get into the game we're going to talk about today, which, of course, is Vampire the Masquerade. Tell us a little bit about your podcast and what you guys are doing on this show, because I absolutely love it. Well, um, what we do is we go through the entire line of Vampire the Masquerade books from the very first release uh, all the way up through the most current. And we're 22 books in. And... um, we're at 1993, so we've got some time. That is awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> of course. I, 
Uh, do you want to extrapolate any at all, uh, Bob? Yeah, but what we're doing is me and Nate sat down and had the idea. We were doing our normal Nerd Words podcast, uh, which was just – I mean, it's good, but it's just us talking about what we love and all things encompassing that of nerddom, as it said. And we had people who listened, and that was great, and we enjoyed it. And then we thought about you know, our real passion, what we really love, is Vampire the Masquerade. And like yourself, we played for, for years. We played this game and on LARP, and then before that was all tabletop. And – there's just such a wealth of knowledge. And I mean, we have the library of libraries for it. Like you would think we worked at white wolf. That's how many books we got. And, and so we said, you know, why don't we just talk about that and see just, you know, how many fans are truly out there. And like Chad, like yourself, we're just, we've been blown away at the response. Uh, there are books recovering people never knew existed. Uh, there's content and insights that, that we're giving, which are just our opinions when we go through it, that a lot of people are grooving with. They really like what we have to say, and we love to provide it. Well, I really like what you guys have to say. And, and you know, I was I was just telling Nate and Bob before we started recording that, you know, it's got my books off the shelf because I haven't played Vampire the Masquerade seriously since college. Now, I, I played quite a bit back in college. In fact, I played a uh, I played this crazy Tremere name Enrique Camargo, who was stuck <laughs> in the 70s. He wore a lime green laser suit. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, Enrique. People thought that yeah. is he a Malkavian? No, he's just stuck in the 70s. He he likes the 70s a lot. But we had a blast playing that back in college. And listening to your podcast has just made it flood right back into me. And so I've been like when I'm not listening to your guys' show on my hour and a half drive to and from work. I'm literally like scribbling down what may become a, a you know a new vampire uh, the masquerade campaign I may actually run here in the future uh, centered around Vegas. I'm calling it "What Stays in Vegas." <laughs> That's a great title. Sounds awesome. Uh, I I mean honestly for us. It was just a matter of like, we really love the setting. We love the books. We love the material. So we're going to talk about it. And as a side effect, I guess, um, like us, most gamers are struck by nostalgia. And that's what we're finding. Like a lot of people who, for whatever reason, they gave it up, forgot about it. It, it slipped out of their life. And now hearing about all these tales, they're like, oh, yeah, that was a really awesome time, wasn't it? So... Yeah, it's a it's an awesome side effect to what we decided to do. It is. It is. And uh well, you know what? Let's get right into it. So let's just talk about Vampire the Masquerade. What is Vampire the Masquerade? Well, I think that uh Vampire the Masquerade is well, it's it's a game of supernatural intrigue with uh um you know p a political setting but it's it's more than that it's a, it's a game of personal horror it's different than like your standard hero based game because you're essentially playing the villain mhm mm and in that when you're playing the villain it's not it's even more complicated than that uh, because everyone's used to a sort of uh, 
black and white version of a villain. And this one makes it to where it really opens up difficult choices, adult choices that someone have to make. For instance, as a vampire, I have to feed on blood and I can have nothing else. And I get no enjoyment from anything, not sex, not food, not drinking. None of that matters. It's only the blood. So why am I not a slavering beast stalking the night? Well, that's because in me, there is that beast, and it's called the frenzy. And what it tries to do is rail against my morality, literally eroding uh, what I consider right and wrong, because I'm a hum- I was a human being. And in a lot of ways, it's a monster you are, unless a monster you become. And so you have to work that balance of feeding your morality and feeding your beast. And that's the inner struggle. Well, you know, one thing I loved about Vampire was when it came out, and I know you guys have touched upon this in your own podcast, but when Vampire first came out, I think, you know, it it was around 92, I want to say. And up until that point, you really had a... uh, it seemed to be that the games that were out there followed the model of Dungeons and Dragons, a happy little party. We're all friends and we're all off on a quest, a, a bunch of murder hobos moving in a straight line down, <laughs> a, down a subterranean passage, killing everything that actually lived there before we trespassed. And what, what, what vampire did was they said, you know, you don't have to have that linear approach to right. gaming, you can have a more sandbox feel. And I really think that's where the, I think in truth, that's where the sandbox approach came from was you take a wide area. Your players don't necessarily have to move or leave that area. And they're, they're not always going to be a happy little party moving in a straight line, killing right. everything in their path. Instead, they're going to have to think they're going to have to deal with each other as much as they're having to deal with the enemy, you might yeah. say. I think one thing that we've touched on um, previously is, like most people, we got our start with fantasy role-playing, with Dungeons & Dragons, with games of a similar ilk. For me, I never really felt at home in that because like you said, it's, it, it tends to be a very linear situation. You have a, a great evil. You have a quest to go fulfill. You get that, you get your XP and you move on this. When I first read it, you know, I was, I was in junior high school when I first read it and I was like, whoa, this is totally different. This is not like anything I've ever experienced. And so that was the big draw for me was I loved gaming but I wanted something outside of that normal sort of static scenario and vampire was able to provide that and provide it. Well, (laughs) it kind of needs to, uh, on the reverse side of the fence, I wanted something more entertaining. Mm -hmm. I, um, was playing D and D and I tried it when I was about, let's say about 12, uh, with my uncle and I played a paladin and I, this is probably the birth of me storytelling, period. And when he was playing the game, he said, okay, you're in the graveyard and all these undead are coming out, scary skeletons, zombies, and they're trying to kill the princess you're protecting. And you feel a pull by your God to fight these things. And that's what you have to do. And at the time I was like, but I, I'm following a God of harvest. Dude, why do I care? What happens <laughs> to the princess? I mean, the princess is the princess, but she could, I don't know, run. Why am I protecting her? She can get out of here. We can all get out of here. And then we can get the army and do it. Well, we are a paladin. It's your job to kill the undead. And I was like, well, okay. Um, 
who's to tell me that exactly? Well, your God's telling you that. And I got so frustrated. Again, I was young too, but I, I asked why. I asked a lot of questions. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to read the book, learn a little more about role playing, no problem. And then there's this library that we had in uh, Mountain Home, Arkansas, like one of them that just had a couple books. And this book was on the shelf. And at the time, being a horror fan, even at that age, I was looking at all sorts of vampire books. And I came across Vampire the Masquerade. And when I saw it, I was like, eh, okay, interesting. I'll, you know, I got to ask the parents. We'll see about it. And they bought me the book. And I, I was instantly hooked. I read mm-hmm. it originally thinking I'm learning about vampires. And really, it's a game. It's a flushed out, detailed game. And that's what was amazing about the book for me. I mean, I was hooked on the themes. If I have a paladin in the vampire world, I can make a choice, you know, mm-hmm. and how I follow my God. And that's that's the moral to that story was that it made it to where it wasn't black and white, made it more real. Yeah, I think when I found it, it was right around the time I probably just finished reading Interview with the Vampire, the Vampire Lestat or something like that. And then I was in my local game store and I saw that book and I started opening it up and I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. This this is something new. This is something I can sink my teeth into. And I think, you know what? I mean, I don't know what you guys think on this. I think that Vampire really changed the game as far as meaning <laughs> excuse the pun uh i think they changed the template by which games are written yeah i, I would definitely agree with that I, I feel like it at that point in time now we're talking what 30 years ago almost um but at that time it was so diametrically different than everything else that was available mm-hmm. well and it was really cool but you know what let's let's talk a little bit then about what what it takes to be a vampire because this is set kind of in a, in a very dark kind of Gothic setting, you know, kind of very industrial. It looks like. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is set in a dark reflection of our own world. It It's basically where you live, but everything is a little bit darker, a little bit dirtier. The shadows tend to run a little bit longer. So it's it's literally just like a dingy reflection of the world that we live in. You know, if you have a little bit of crime in your city, you got a little bit more crime in your city. You know, those those types of things. Um, go ahead, Bob. I like to tell people that when you're thinking of the world of darkness and the gothic punk horror genre, and you're absolutely right that goth is the big thing in it, um, gothic sense does not see the world in, in, in pretty halos and rainbows. It's something where it's gritty, real, and you have to have something dark in you. Everyone does. Pe- few want to admit it. And goth culture embraces that darkness, and it could be very beautiful. And it was Mary Shelley who originally started writing in that facet, and I feel that's where it comes from. And when you take that aspect of what Mary Shelley's themes of her books, like Frankenstein being, in my opinion, most famous of hers, um, when she wrote about the monster, it was the fact that no matter what he did, it was always just coming to an end. It was always ruining something. A being that shouldn't exist of great power, born from the love of a scientist who wanted to defy death from a fear of death. Add that to mm-hmm. the fact of how Frankenstein, you know, in his story, wanted to take care of, or in the story, wanted to take care of a little girl, wanted to be known, wanted someone to, despite his horror, could understand him and that he could have a friend that he ends up destroying. And that always, I always think of that when I even sit down and even open a book for Vampire, because every single character is that. You're, you're a horrible monster who was a haunted reflection of the mortal world. And in the world of darkness, that's exactly the world you're living in. The real world with that dark there, and you're basically haunting it. 
Yeah, I think as far as like what it takes to be a vampire, it doesn't take anything. I think that um, from the perspective of this game, you take any normal human being and you're now putting them in an extraordinary situation. That's the beauty of this game. You don't have to make the... Uh, you know, the individual that spent years learning how to fire guns, you can take a normal person, you know, you could take a starving artist or you could take a, a street punk. And now you can turn that idealized concept into something more. Mm -hmm. What are the so how does one become the vampire? In the in the rule sense, <laughs> there's many reasons a what they call a sire, which is the vampire to turn immortal, uh, which is called the chilled. And what happens is that they drain all the blood, all the life from the vampire, and then almost like an infection, they give some of their own uh, to their child, and that awakens the monster in them, awakens their beast. And a lot of lore is built up in vampire about what that process is, about why is it, is it a disease? No, it's a biblical curse. Is it a biblical curse, or is it something that's already in man, period, and the blood serves to awaken it? And... That's that's the fun of it. There's no real clear cut other than the rules mechanic that says you have to follow that process. Yeah, it uh, deviates ever so slightly from um, certain mythologies, but it also, you know, depending on what you read, it follows those mythologies as well. Um, you know, it, it, the the embrace. If a, 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 let's say you're a vampire and um, you know you're you're a creature that lives in the night, you can't have anyone that you love. The everything dies and fades away, and you happen to spot, uh, you know, this gentleman in a nightclub that reminds you of your long lost cousin from. 500 years ago who died of old age but something in that individual reminds you of him and so you decide that you're going to bring him into the world of darkness with you you're going to embrace him and make him one of your own well that guy didn't know a b or c happened he's just out enjoying a night at the club and now suddenly he's faced with a decision where he has all of history to experience or who knows what this monster could either bring him into his bosom or kill him outright, you know? And then, so, and then the fascination about being that vampire first time awakened, you know, Chad, if we, if we embraced you now, you, your cohorts over, over, where is he again? Vacationing. Oh, he's in Jamaica. He's, he's living up in Jamaica, right? No matter what it's fun aside, you would love to be in Jamaica. Who wouldn't, but let's say right here, right now, um, we just, tonight ambushed you and turned you into a vampire and you woke up for the first time right where you're at, you would view your apartment completely alien or house completely alien to you. I mean, your senses are different. You're no longer concerned about a hunger in your stomach as you once knew it. It's now like a hunger that burns you. It's something you have to do and you need blood. And there is no concept of you won't do anything to get it. It's how do I stop myself from smelling the neighbor next door? Right. It's a, it's playing a careful balancing act between this new uh, monstrosity that exists within you that urges you forward to consume blood and that human part of your brain that says, no, 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 no. Those are people I love. That's that that's the you know, that's my wife or, you know, that's that's my I, you know, I, I don't want to eat them. And suddenly you do <laughs> and you lose all control of yourself. It's and you it, can't quit. Like right. you do something horrible, you don't get to fold the character. That's the point. It's dealing with the real world consequences of it. We use that term a lot, and we mean real world is in the world of darkness. That's now a body. That's someone you love. That's someone who's gone. How does it affect your soul, your outlook, your your thought processes? How do you survive it? How do you keep moving on? Yeah. 
Well, once you become a vampire, say say I'm embraced, and how do I learn about my new world that I am now going to be inhabiting? And that's horrible, right? It's it's such a horrible thing. Hopefully, you have a sire that cares to stick around and teach you the ways. Right. We usually will bring food to you. There will be some poor sucker who's in that room that is only food. Right. Now, you're you're going to see it's, it's a person. And what I often like is that uh, depending on the sire and how the, the your first meal that your sire provides is always an indication of how much of a bastard that sire is. You know, because usually if it's a hopefully it's an adult. Depends on how cruel they are. Could be a kid, you know, if they want a real kick in the in the stomach there. Uh, but the idea is, if it's an adult and it's a it's a female, there's that aspect of I think that's one of the harder choices versus a male. I think in our core, everybody's like, ah, oh, that's oh, gonna suck. That's a mom. That's a sister. You know, someone's someone loves this woman, and then you can't care about that. And that's why it's most often the choice because it's forcing you to feed on them without consequence initially. And when that that high is over, that that desire is sated. Now there's just this corpse, and then you would hear your sire begin telling you, "Well, now we can discuss what you are," because now yeah. you know. It, it it is in a perfect world of darkness. You would hope to have someone to nurture you through the process of becoming a vampire, and that's rarely the circumstance. Oftentimes, the individual that brought you over, they got some demons they're battling that are way deeper and way older than you. And uh, you you may oftentimes find yourself in a scenario that is just too horrific for your 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 mortal memories to, to, to deal with. But that's where you are now. That's who you are now. And it's that nightly struggle against the identity that you had as a human being and the truth of the, of of the fact that you're a monster now. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, that's just one scenario. And the thing is you may end up getting embraced and your sire may just go, oops, I made a mistake and duck out. And And now now you're stuck. (laughs) You have no uh, guidance at all. There's a clan where that's a process and that's clan gang grow. It's a tradition. They embrace you and throw you into your environment. And and the sire doesn't stick around that you're aware of. Really, they watch you for a year. That's the process. And if you fold because you realize, you know, they want to see how you handle the sunlight burning your skin for the first time. What does your instincts tell you to do? Can you obey your instincts? Do you just learn to hide your messes? Or are you a rampant monster that's just tearing through from day one, just indulging in the power? And your sire at that point as a gang grow has a choice to end it because you're a mistake or they see something in you, something that calls to their beast. And they deem you worthy, and then they'll come around and talk to you and tell you you've been doing good, kid. Yeah, keep up the good work. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bob, you mentioned something there that's very important in this game, and that is clans. So, how do clans? What are clans, and and how do they? Uh, how are vampires associated to clans? What are clans? Well, clans are the familial structures. Actually, they're common traits make a clan. For instance, the curse of Cain affects all vampires differently. And but there are common traits and they go by the size of those vampires who share those traits and they formulate clans, an ideal behind it. And it's really an elder concept. You have a council of elders because if you take it back far enough, what were the first five vampires thinking they were? They were all unique, five individuals separate from each other that undoubtedly had different characteristics. Nobody shared the same thing. 
Mm-hmm. And that's the idea. And that's also part of the lore. They don't ever really explain why the clan idea came about, at least direct. It's just one of those things that said, okay, these three made these 13, and these 13, so on and so forth. Right. It's like a generational scenario. Um, We recently did a podcast on the Book of Nod. And for anybody listening that's not familiar with this game, that's a really good piece of material to go and read because it's going to give you some historical perspective on where vampires originated from and sort of how the clan concept came about. And not to bog the podcast down too much, but... Oh, I bog it, it down all the time. Don't worry. <laughs> in the lore, there there was the first murderer, uh, and and it kind of mirrors the biblical history. There was Cain. Cain killed Abel. Cain was cast out and cursed. And uh, Cain is essentially the first vampire in in the lore sense. And Cain got lonely, and he wanted people around him, and so he created three additional vampires and so on and so on down the line. And by the time you get to this third generation of vampires, that's where you start to get into this clan uh, concept where those 13 are basically responsible for everything else. So now in the modern times, uh, if you're a, a member of the Gangrel clan, like Bob had, uh, uh, had mentioned, you can trace, hopefully, you can trace your lineage all the way back to that original member of the third generation that sort of started everything. And there's curses abound, and um, essentially, from a mechanic standpoint, it differentiates you from the other vampires insofar as the powers that you get, the uh, the things that separate you for appearance wise right these these distinctions become the commonality for the clan what we like to call the template uh for what you can expect yet just as many people will say the book of not is real remember it's an in-game prop that was that was made from the perspective of two battling inter-secret society vampires who claim this is what happened yeah there's all kinds of there's all kinds of stuff that mires that down for you as a reader it kind of will give you perspective on, okay, this is what a clan is. This is why those clans exist. This is where it all came from. And, and you know, and to me, revealing a greater tragedy, you're an immortal that isn't even aware of where this started. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it seems to me, so basically you have your vampires and the vampires are embraced and essentially what the clans are, you have Cain, he made three, they made 13, and each of these 13 had particular traits that seemed that they most associated to them, and they passed those traits or disciplines down to their kin, to their uh, protégés, to the ones that they embrace, and it's, it's basically like a family that traces back all the way up to one of the original 13 of the third generation. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's pretty spot on. I mean, that's exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mechanically speaking. Yeah. And then basically for the, for our one fan out there, the book of Nod, it, it, I've always seen the book of Nod as the closest thing the vampires have to kind of their own Testament of their own Bible, I guess you would say. And much like uh, human being, mortal religion, it's deeply contested. <laughs> it's hotly debated. It may be, it may not be. Um, 
but yeah, uh, you know, for, for, uh, a new player, uh, looking to kind of get an idea of like, where does this all come from? It's a great book to use for that purposes. And another thing, Chad, you hit on, you're, a, you're a fan of interview with the vampire. I'm a huge Anne Rice fan. Mm-hmm. And it's something that the character in her stories, Armand struggles with. He was the oldest vampire that he had ever met or he ever knew was around. And he doesn't even know where he comes from or why. And that theme is exactly what I think of is through the heart of vampire from an elder's perspective. If I am the apex, if I am the top of the food chain and I had a mortal life that I can barely recall, but do remember I had one, then do how, how was I brought about? Where did I come from? And what is the point? And should I care in a thousand years? I'm willing to bet your perspective completely changes hundred times over by the time you get there to formulate this entity that you now are. Right. Oh, yeah. In fact, I think, you know, it's interesting. I was listening to an earlier podcast uh, that you guys did for 25 years. And, uh, and and I remember, Bob, you were talking about humanity and, and that and I know that's a big theme with you. Uh, and it, And it should be because that's something, you know, if you talk about being old, right? Well, you're going to live for a long time. And Eventually, you're going to get a little bit of ennui. Correct. <laughs> Correct. I said it right. Nice callback. Uh, you're bored. Right. And, and, you know, what is to stop you? What, it, you know, you have to find a purpose in life. Now, some vampires have found the Book of Nod. Whether it's true or not, the ones that believe in it probably believe in it because they need something to believe in, you know, to keep them going. And, and I think one thing, you know, I, I remember reading uh, in the Anne Rice books was, you know, like you had Marius, uh, the, the maker of Armand, and, and, you know, he found his way to stay alive by this love of learning. And that, that was his path. I guess you might say the path of enlightenment, maybe. Uh, yeah. yeah. And you had Armand. Well, Armand, he lost his, his way and, and he clung, you know, and, and this isn't going to be a show about those books, but I just, I, I think they do make a good example of how vampires must find something, you know, they got to have a hobby. Well, I got to tell you, Chad, it's like, it's like a lot of people make the distinction, well, they're separate. I, I don't, and you know, they're separate companies, you know, well, not, she's not even a company. Anne Rice is a, is a fantastic author, in my opinion. And that sings, though, a lot of what she made was already in place in these books. And it's amazing how two separate things could go on in the same direction. Because oh, yeah. I, yeah. I tell everybody, if you love Vampire the Masquerade and haven't seen or read anything by Anne Rice in those, you need to do it. Because it's all the themes are there. Everything about it is in there. Yeah, and uh, what the, about the Twilight? Now, should okay. I read Twilight? Ugh. I mean, uh, you know, if if that's what you want to read, that's totally fine. But I don't think that uh, these are the same vampires. <laughs> Maybe it's a little different, uh, different thing going on there. But no, I, I I do agree, and I think I think that's. I think humanity is important. We're not going to get too deep into the mechanics because this the, you, this show could go a long time. I mean, this is a very <laughs> yes. detailed game. But I do think, and I agree with, uh, I know, Bob, when you talk about uh, humanity and the different paths uh, after you give up, you know, the path of humanity. Humanity is essentially the, the thing that the person out there wants to play this game. They just need to remember that, you know, this is what this is. The, this is how your vampire more or less stays sane and doesn't burn himself to death out right. of boredom. 
know? You're exactly right. And, and one of the things about humanity I love best in this game is when you're starting a campaign and you have those players who just cut loose. Like, to mm-hmm. me, I think when you first get those, you know, again, mechanic, but they just learn that they have super, like a Bruja, learns they can move faster than anybody else alive. And they have that strength to easily break down a window or a door with almost a glance of their hand. And they got the presence. Anybody has to listen to them. And that I love living in an adrenaline-pumped head that people get, that sort of ego-driven kill-throw machine. And at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, it's telling them, like, you went through tonight and you beat up the gangbanger and you, you took out the cop who tried to stop you and you savaged the one person who tried to speak truth to you, which was the prince's ghoul, who tried to tell you to calm down. And at the end of the day, you're back in your haven, which isn't yours. It's your next door neighbors who, when you came off the floor as a new vampire, chose to eat them. And the place is now smelling rotten. Death is settling in dawn's coming there are sirens in the distance you're trapped in your house and you don't even know how to hide yourself first of the day and you got to make that choice and i watched that player go you betrayed me that, <laughs> that entire time you were like there telling me it's great and it's good and it's amazing and then i had those silly little roles that got in the way i was like right i took care of those for you i mean you're rationalizing well you know and those are humanity roles that i as a storyteller do and don't even tell them I just, mm-hmm. I just let them feel it, right? If you hit a cop, it should be horrible hitting someone hard enough that it shatters bone in their face. That should be one of the, it should be terrible. But if that person really angered you, right, and you're a human, you can walk away. It's part of being a human. Guilt comes in. It's mm-hmm. there. But when you're above the law, when you're beyond that, when you're immortal, and truly, does a life sentence matter to you if you could go to jail? Those terms, so No. And you just lash out. It's completely autopilot, in my opinion. And after you hit them and it happens, do you dwell on it? Or are you on to the next thing, joy riding in the car you stole? And most people will go, man, it's a game. I'm having fun. And man, I'm Bruja. Let's do this. And I'm like, they're with the storyteller going, it's all going to come crashing down in a minute. Yeah. yeah Enjoy yeah. while you're there. The the humanity, uh, the, the, the concept of it is literally designed as a, a way to keep you in check. You, you've turned into a monster. How deep are you going to go down this rabbit hole? And is there an end? There is. So it's, uh, it's, it, it's one of the more unique concepts of the game. It is. I, I, you know, it's, it's almost like in D and D they gave you alignment, but how many people have we seen that just disregards it? I'm lawful good is torturing the orc. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Whereas in Vampire the Masquerade, humanity is like, it's like alignment that the GM is not going to so much say you have to stick by. It's if you don't stick by something, you're going to, you know, it's dynamic and it's, right. it goes where you take the player or take and- the character. Right. And and the, the, the more willing you are to do terrible things, the easier it becomes to do them. And it reflects in how you role play that character. It reflects in how others react to you. Because if you were embraced as a vampire yesterday, chances are you can still walk down the street and interact with people and they're not going to notice anything different. You're probably still going to blink and you're going to breathe reflect, reflexively, even though you don't need to. But you start killing people just without mercy and doing all these terrible things. Well, you're going to look more like a monster. It's going to become more apparent in your physical uh, 
in, in, in your mannerisms, in the way you hold yourself. If you've ever stood next to someone who didn't breathe or blink, you'd probably know right off there is something wrong with them. And that's you as you degrade and slip and become more of the beast that dwells inside you and less of the human you used to be. And that's got to be my favorite part of humanity. I love it as because it's a 10, 10 being max, one being the, or zero being the least. And I love how the closer you get to it, they have clear cut examples of what would be outside, uh, outside the pale of you reacting within the confines of your morality. And whereas a mortal doesn't lose humanity because, you know, you're human, that's just a state of grace that you get. A vampire absolutely can lose more and more ground to the beast. But then, like Nate just described a little bit there, you know, you, you don't blink anymore. Why bother? Your chest doesn't move when you breathe. That reflex is dead to you. You don't care. You know, aspects of pacing, aspects of wasted motion, they're just gone. They're just gone. All there is is instinct. When you do something now, it's because you thought to do it instead of it being an autonomic function of the human body. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, I think we'll end up getting touching back on humanity and how vampires have built up belief systems to maintain their humanity. But before we get into that, let's just rattle off the names of the different clans because we mentioned gangrel we said there were 13 of them so what are these 13 bloodlines that a vampire might fit into so let's see if we can do this on top of our head nate you got <laughs> you got asamite you got bruja you got gangrel you have malkavian torador venture we tremere followers of set giovanni la sombra yes the Jov- <laughs> as malleable as their clan power, yes, the Zimzimche. Um, La Sombra? Nosferatu? Nosferatu, we missed. Good call. Good call. And we said Malkavian. We did. Okay. And uh, there's and then there's one that people like to call a clan, but that's only in the Sabbat, in their Kata, four panders in the Sabbat. Okay. The Orphans. Well, all right. Let's give me a very brief synopsis of what, you know, what is the stereotype, I guess you would say, of each of these? Because I've always been a big believer that, you know, there's a stereotype and then there's every individual is somewhat different. But what is the general stereotype of each of, of each client? We'll talk about the Asamites. The Asamites are religious fanatics that are out of uh, the Middle East. Um, what they do is that they worship uh, the blood god Hakim. And to that end, uh, Hakim sends them an assassination contracts for vampires all over the world. And that's where they also establish their fear because they practice ritualistic diablerie. And because uh, we haven't talked about it, diablerie is when you consume the soul of another vampire. Uh, we'll get deeper into that, I'm sure. Uh, Tremere. Yeah. Tremere are the occult scholars of vampire society. They are mortals who, through their own ritual magic found a way to inflict the curse of Cain upon them. There's more to that story, but that's what they'll tell you. And through that, they've wrought power through the blood, true magic. They wield throughout the entire clan. Uh, the Lasombra. The Lasombra called the brother's keeper. Uh, the Sombras are able to summon shadows at will to be as tangible as steel, as str- just as strong, and also possess the ability to command masses. And, they are the most ruthless of the clans, in my opinion, that they do through their rulership because they reward anyone who succeeds and they over-penalize those who bring failure. So they're like the dark version of the Ventru. 
I was just about to say that the other side of the coin. Yeah, they're they're like the evil version, if you speak in those terms, good versus evil. Assuming the Venture are good. Which, fair, they're not. (laughs) And and they're very much distinct, but in a brief, that's what we're looking at. Uh, The followers of Set. Followers of Set are basically the naughty Egyptian god vampires. Uh, They worship the god Set, who is a god of destruction, um, who is also an antediluvian. And what they do and preach is self-destruction they want people to serve all their whims and desires to such excess as to ruin their and degrade their morality to make them capable of doing anything after that point and uh they're like more most commonly associated with snakes with uh you know the, the cobra and and old school egyptian concepts and lore uh the clan next would be the malkavian the malkavians are considered to have a a mad insight into most things that they do. They often see things that others do not, and their insanity that is the curse of their blood enhances this in many tragic, many times tragic ways. Because of this, they're not uh, necessarily feared. They're like an oracle of Delphi, if you will. If you have a Malkavian around, odds are if you can decipher their rants or their behaviors and look past it, they often lead to you being able to have a hand into the future and, uh, of fate. The unifying uh, feature of, I guess feature is a word we'll use, Um, they're all struck with madness. It's inescapable for them. Some form of madness uh, curses all of them. Next, we have the Bruja. The Bruja are the passionate rebelers. They're the um, rebelers. That's my term. Uh, They're the passionate rebels. What they do is that they fight and rail against anyone who would see, as a whole, everyone shackled to laws that they don't believe in. They dethrone tyrants, as well as those who feel that the laws that are restrictive to them personally, they, they just have to get rid of, and they can't help themselves. They are fueled by a passion that makes them very prone to their beast lashing out. And, and more, that clan also comes from a, a long lineage of learned scholars. And those warrior scholars, as you call it, or warrior poets, if you prefer. Mm-hmm. And that's them. Next, we have the Torador clan. The Torador clan is often misconceived and cast to the side as just being a clan of beauty. They're just sirens, as people would refer to them usually. And it can be farther from the truth. They are the most ruthless in terms of a scathing tongue. A torter is able to reduce your whole entire ego to nothing if they so choose because you want to be near a torador. They're not only beautiful, they're graceful, and they dictate the very halls of society for vampires. Uh, also, they're the most closely associated with beauty, with art, um, and uh, that art captivates them. They're drawn to true displays of beauty. Uh, the next, uh, we have Clan Shamase or Zamis, or however you wish to pronounce them. This clan's amazing because it's so unique. Uh, the concept of these Zamis is that they are the old world Romanian hospitality Carpathian mountains voivodes or lords if you will and they control these fiefdoms that are these small areas that are maybe not so small I would never say that to a voivode the Zemis but um, it's an area where they are the total master of all they see and everyone that comes in uninvited 
is severely punished, sometimes tormented, sometimes both. But if you have their hospitality, you are the most important guest, and that voivode would rather their life be forfeit than yours. And when you see uh, an image of this clan, one thing that will strike you is that uh, they have a strongly held belief of continual evolution. Um, they're able to mold and manipulate flesh and bone. Not and all of them. Th- but- not all of them, but I mean, as a, as a stereotype, uh, typically, they're known for their uh, deeply powerful lordship and their constant change, constant evolution. And the most famous vampire of them all, Count Dracula, is from Clan Zemis. Next, okay. we have, next we have the Nosferatu. The Nosferatu. Uh, the Nosferatu clan is a clan afflicted, again, with their beasts being held on the outside of their flesh. Whereas the other vampires can get away with a great lie, and that is that they're humans, but really they're vampires. The Nosferatu are just vampires. They don't have that choice. Um, they can be mutated horribly to something unrecognizable as anything humanoid at the very worst of it. Usually they're just something that has to cover up uh, to do what they do. To that end, they have mastered the ability to hide from anyone, really, uh, mortal senses. Their power cloaks them from sight, and this is to their advantage. And Clan Nosferatu are masters of secrets. They're able to hide, listen, and disseminate information wherever they go. And it's expected. Next, we have the Giovanni. The Giovanni are necromancers par excellence. And they're ruthless because their mortal lines uh, come from banking, much like the Medici. And in this aspect, they control both mercantile and necromancy and in a lot of ways stole their embrace on top of it into vampiric kind they made their whole family immortal and i do mean family in the giovanni they mean that to the literal so they're uh, kind of like uh like the borgias the medicis the, the exactly think of renaissance these these powerful italian banking families that were very machiavellian Yes, that is a very apt uh, description. Uh, Next, we have the Gangrel. The Gangrel is by far your most fierce clan because they believe in the beast. Uh, When a Gangrel embraces you, we talked about that already, but just a quick overview. They leave you to your own to see if you can develop the instincts to survive. And then they may bring you into the fold officially. But if they do so, it's only to let you know whose territory is theirs. They view mortals as food. And this is the hardest distinction for a new Gangrel to handle. And the clans fear them because by them embracing the beast, it also grants them a power. Because if you're able to use the vampiric powers through your beast, then who is to stop you from doing whatever you want? And to that end, they're solitary and are stricken with wonderlust. It's usually very rare you'd even encounter that problem. Yeah, they have a strong affinity for animals. Uh uh, because again, their familiarity with their own beast, um, mm. and typically they tend to display those uh, beastly traits on their own body. You know, the, when you think of a vampire that might have like uh, you know cat ears or cat eyes, th- these are the individuals you'd be thinking of. Uh, in the, in a strong sense, they are the traditional interpretation of the vampire—the vampire that can turn into a cloud of mist and go under the door, or turn into a bat. That, Summon rats. Right. The, 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 those are your gangrel. And I think the last one that we need to talk about is Clan Ravnos. Clan Ravnos of uh, the Rom, or the Romani. Uh, 
Uh, they are gypsies, of course, if you prefer. And what they do is they use a unique power called Shemaristry. It truly speaks to them because it's all about illusion and trickery. And they have a strong belief system in, again, family, as the Ram do. But also they feel that it's an illusion, this world. That it's a common belief that anyone who holds too strong to any one item or object in this world is a person who needs to learn a lesson. And oftentimes they view that those lessons should be taught to people like princes who would force vampires into a set of laws that none agreed to. So they teach the lesson of loss and a lesson of unity, loyalty. Okay. And I think that uh, I think that's all 13 of them. Well, I have a question about the uh, one of the clans in particular. This is a question that has actually since back in the day, uh, back in college, uh, aside from the tabletop group that I used to play a lot of vampire with, I also used to do <clears throat> a lot of uh, the what were called uh, uh, mushes. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with computer oh, yeah. mushes. Yeah, I played in a. It's an online uh, for our one listener out there. Basically, it's like a mud, but it's more role play based. I guess you'd say it's more sandboxy. And I played in one called City of Darkness that was uh, based in in London. And uh, oddly enough, uh, I played the only I was the only person ever allowed to do it because I'm probably the only person who ever asked to do it. I played a original mummy book mummy. <laughs> Sebek Latifi. Uh, but, uh, and boy, he freaked out all the other vampires because they didn't have they didn't have a fucking clue what he was. He was like, you know, you guys can live forever. That's awesome. I will live forever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, now nah, he bluffed a lot, though. Well, anyway, we're not talking about mummy, though. <laughs> uh, but one thing that always struck me and uh, is with the gangrel. And I used to go back and forth with with a lot of the gangrel players about this. Uh, they would always talk about how. We're friends of the Garu. And I'm like, really? Because to my way of thinking, they probably fucking hate you more than any of you. <laughs> right. You know, that's uh, that's something that we've encountered as we're going back through the lines of books. And there's been a number of revisions and different editions. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But when and, and this is just my opinion. So, you know. Mm -hmm. Jump in if you have a different one. But my opinion on the matter was that uh, at the time when this game was launched, Vampire the Masquerade was their primary. And they had plans for different lines. And, and those all came out eventually. Uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse. Uh, there's one called Mage. And it's about, uh, you know, human beings that can alter reality uh, and things like that. So I always saw it as a way to tie one of the lines with the other line. You go, hey, like the Gangrel, they like they like the werewolves and, you know, they hang out with the werewolves. So you should probably buy the werewolf book. And that makes sense from a marketing perspective. But as the game changed, that relationship, that begrudging relationship, it really there was a much greater divide when you read werewolf and you you understand that game. Yeah, they're not fans of vampires. Um, so. I would say, in my personal opinion, the Gangrel are the closest in concept to the werewolves, and they're the ones most likely to interact with them. And there could occasionally be a begrudging uh, passing in the night, mm -hmm. uh, although that like, hey, we're friends with them, not so much. Yeah, what do you think on that one, Bob? You know, I'm trying to put this in a way, um, I'm, I'm kind of 
I, it's a world of darkness, right? And I could tell that at the inception, that was the idea, that vampires was the most popular they were starting with. And then I feel that when they realized just how popular, they just dove in to hurry up and make all this content for it. You know, they really weren't sure. Because mm-hmm. obviously they have strong standalone supplements for all the all the supernaturals, the supernals, uh, that fit into the world of darkness as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at vampires being the most popular, the second is werewolf. And why that is is because they found a strong relation uh, and reason that the werewolves would exist in the same world that vampires do. And like Nate already pointed out, the ones that would interact with them the most are clan gangrel. But at the same time, it starts off where they're almost buddy-buddy. Mm-hmm. And one of the books we just reviewed, you learned that um, a vampire is very much – well, friends with the Geta Fenris in Germany. Mm-hmm. Later on, that can't happen. I mean, it's almost. <laughs> we also almost, learn you can diabolize a werewolf. Right? <laughs> we learned that too, right from that book, which means they had a concept where it was almost like, who I don't know who it was, but they were really reaching, trying to find any grasp to pull them into each other's world before they went. You know what? They just got to. If you're running a campaign focused on werewolves, then just be werewolves, mm-hmm. and vampires have to take a back seat. You can run into them, but they really should be cameos or one of those uh, first-level monsters that you fight before you get to the end boss. Definitely more of an antagonist than a friend. I would I would say if you had a vampire character that had a relationship with a werewolf, it would be a, it would be forbidden fruit. It would be it's a either, one-off, right? Either society is going to go, no, that can't happen. We need to end this right now. Greatest theme that I myself ran. And I really enjoyed was when there was a woman who chose to be a vampire, a gang girl who had ties to a werewolf and that mm-hmm. werewolf, they both had to decide what, what's it going to be. I was playing the NPC werewolf and she was asking to get rid of his very world, his very religion, everything they stood for to be with her. And she was trying to convince him to take, you know, give blood so he can make him a ghoul, make him immortal and keep him there with her. And he was trying to convince her that to a point, when are we just selfish? When are, when are we just clinging to life? And she I had her in tears. I was almost moved to tears because what it is, is I gave him also, you know, that chink in the armor. He was dying. He was dying. It's not the first time they dealt with it that he accepted. And in being a second lifetime he's living through and his people now definitely knowing why he, you know, he has to make a choice. It's her or him. And he ended up dying and she, her world was destroyed with that character and the player loved it. It, it added growth to her, but it also granted her an increased humanity. You know, the act of letting him go, things have to die. And she doesn't. That's her curse to bear. And that was very well done, in my opinion. Not to pat my own back, but it was like, no, just, the, awesome. just the excitement I saw was like, that's where it makes sense. But the concept that a gang girl is running around, yeah, my bro, he's a werewolf. You want you want a buck? No problem. I'll bring my pack. You bring your pack. Let's see. If you don't have a pack? Guess you're just dead, bro. Sucks being you. Yeah. That no way. That doesn't even fit uh, the themes that are that are present in it. I, I yeah. I I've always said in all and you know regarding all games really, it, it's your game. You run it the way you want to. You use the books as a guideline, of course. But it, you know it's your it's your campaign, and I'm perfectly happy if if. You know, I, the way I run it, and it's just my interpretation. I look at it as Garou uh, werewolves. Uh, Garou is what they call themselves. See 
vampires as an abomination. They're they're the dead that should be dead and in the ground. They're creatures that they're they're like a byproduct of the worm, probably as the Garo see them. Uh, now this is Garo as a whole in my campaign. So, like I said, there are the exceptions, but not the rule. And generally speaking, they see Gangrel almost as an affront. I mean, uh, so and, and that's just how I always ran it. So the the Gangrel uh, have to keep a distance, generally speaking. And, and luckily, they're the best position to keep a distance because they have the best senses. Uh, they know when a Garo's around. But uh, that's how I run it. Now, I I think that there could be some exceptional uh, exception stories out there. Right. What always drove me nuts, though, was when people, you know, we'd, we'd have the, the in the Elysium and the gang girl be like, you know, hey, you know, I'll, I'll just take you guys with me through the wilderness. You know, hey, I'm gang girl and they're Garo and we're buds, you know, so if you're with me, you're all right. <laughs> which is comical and i agree with that because um, or i agree with your point on on how that is because knowing werewolf as well as i do i mean it's i'd say it's definitely second to my vampires but i do know werewolf and it's not even that there is there are not tribes that are dedicated to the concept of a vampire relationship but they're very clear these are people who are so close to the worm that it, you can smell it on them and if, you know, the vampires you do with don't smell like them, then they smell static, never changing like what they call the weaver. And so to that werewolf, you're far from anything we should be buddies with. And odds are we should just return you to the earth. Yeah, because it's kind of like I used the analogy one time. They said, well, yeah, but they're so much alike. That's why they all just get along. And I was like, well, humans are just like, I mean, vampires are a lot like humans, but humans want to burn them at the stake. Right, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Right. I'm going to steal that, in fact, that's so good. Because they're dead humans and they need to be dead. (laughs) Fire and lots of it. Right. No, that's absolutely – I would agree with you. I I don't – I don't see them ever having the coffee clutch and sitting down and chit-chatting because they're so close to each other. I think that the the opinion that was formulated about that was a byproduct of the first edition, kind of like, how are we going to fit it in? But – in mm-hmm. the more recent versions of this game, that that's not a thing. <laughs> that, <Yeah>. That's gone. <laughs> and I also loved uh, of another clan. You guys covered the Malkavian book, the first edition Malkavian book. And I burst out laughing when you said this, because I had been thinking this for so long. I've, I've done a few LARPs also. Uh, actually, I, I, I did a vampire LARP, but I was a part of the much smaller werewolf group, uh, and uh, I was playing a, a Shadow Lord. But anyway, That's and right. I did, by the way, I met my goal. I took over the whole pack. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 they, I told him, hey, I can talk to the spirits, and I'd go off with uh, one of the roving GMs and make my role, and he said, you failed. And i go back to the group and say, I succeeded, and they do this. <laughs> he was like, looking at me like, you failed. I'm like, they don't know that. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them whatever I want. Don't roar, <laughs> don't roar. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but what you guys said about the Malkavian, some, some Malkavian interpretations that are very rampant out there is that we're happy clowns. <laughs> we're, right. we're furries. Yeah, yeah there, there are, there's plenty of room for interpretation, even with all the material that's been written and presented by White Wolf and Onyx Path. Like, 
there, it, there's just so much room for interpretation because you're an individual. You have your own imagination. Mm-hmm. And when you look at a book like that, that, that first uh, Malkavian clan book, it's very easy for you to go, oh, I just act wacky and bounce off the walls and talk in, in third person. I'm wacky. Yeah, but no. Yeah, but no. That, you know, that's sure, that's correct for you, but that's not really what they were going for. And they rectify it. Like all games, you have great ideas and you present them. And then sometimes you go, oh, this got away from us. This is not really how we wanted people to interpret it. So let's fix it. Let's try to rein it in. And this game is no exception. Mm, right. It's not really Bozo. It's more like John Wayne Gacy. Yes. You got it. <laughs> you got it. And I like that. And But the real thing about it is someone had told us, one of our fans, you know, chimed in and they were like, hey, listen, you know, I, I did like that clan. Let me tell you why. Because that book was written for like one clan member just went off the rails in an insane asylum. And when you look at it that way, there is artwork in there that kind of hints to that. But at the same time, we're like, let's be real. At what point are we making excuses? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the 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 opinion that was presented to us was, you know, hey, I have a I have a, a background in mental health and looking at this, like they did a really good job of presenting this type of uh, mental disorder, what have you. And I was like, yeah, that's great. I agree with you. But the average person reading this book doesn't have a background in in mental health. So they're not going to interpret it the way you did because you're a professional. So maybe it's that they did too good of a job, mm-hmm. but they're presenting it to people that can't interpret it in the way that a professional would interpret it. <laughs> in other words, baby steps. Don't throw them in a deep end. Baby <laughs> right. steps. Right. Or at yeah, least I have know a, the Malkavy is the best plan to start a player off with. Oh, Probably no. not. <laughs> well, well, as, as a first ed standard, no, I, you know, if you're just going back clan, but they, truly do that clan justice later on in the revisions i want to read the re- the revised edition i have seen the first edition one i knew what you guys were talking about with the upside down print on one page and all that i remembered that i have not yet and that's and i really want to read the revised one because you guys have said that it's good and malkavian that is the one clan i honestly myself i can't wrap my i can't play one i can't I can't properly in my own mind play a Malkavian because I don't properly understand how to do it. Yeah, I think that uh anytime you play this game, you're sort of venturing outside of your comfort zone just to play a vampire. So wrapping your head around that and thinking sort of from an alien perspective, that can be difficult in its own right. But then taking it a step further and try trying to properly portray some form of madness that mm-hmm. can be even more daunting. And for a lot of people, they're just, you know, they go, I, I'm not going to go there. I don't, <laughs> I don't have the patience or time or energy. And it can be very hard. It's a very challenging concept to play, uh, but it can be very rewarding as well. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Well, okay. So we have clans. We know that you have vampires and vampires have sires and sire and the number of sires you have between yourself and your ultimate, uh, uh, progenitor of your line are generations. So uh, the the older the generation, the older the vampire generally is, unless of course you know, say you know, uh, fourth generation Methuselah decided to have their first <laughs> embrace, you know, yesterday. Uh, but uh, generally speaking, we know that. Now let's tie in these clans. That the 
you have the clans and they have their organizational structures. But I believe, and this is kind of where I was saying earlier that we'll get back to humanity a little bit, but on a more macro scale, I guess you would say. So you have bands of clans that have fostered a common belief system. And and that's what I mean, I guess, when I say this kind of macro humanity, they, they have fostered, decided to follow a common system of beliefs, we'll say. Uh, and, and thus, they have formed a larger group than just an individual clan. And there are a couple of these out there. And can you guys talk a little bit about what those power structures, those powers, those factions are that are out there that do this? You're referring to like the different sects of vampires? Exactly. So we have the Camarilla, we have the Sabbat. Those are the two major ones. Mm-hmm. Then you have Anarchs are one as well. Yeah, what, the, uh, what distinguishes one from the other? So the Camarilla is the apex that started the whole problem. Like you got a, it's a minor vampire history lesson there. So you had it to where everybody was battling over these fiefdoms in the Dark Ages, where there was just rulers who said I had children, and here's my dynasty, and my children will obey me because this is my land we feed on, this is my land we foster, and I could just kill you because I'm the oldest and strongest here. Mm-hmm. Over time, though, humanity booms. There's many other places where we went to. We have our wars and so on. And eventually, the, the mortals get hip to the idea that we're just being fed upon by these monsters. And there's a lot of us now. And they just decide, hey, let's rebel. We're going to burn them. We no longer are playing to this pale guy on this throne who's been around. He's in my ancestor's history book of the founding of the town. And I'm on the seventh generation of the family. So something's up. Religion takes its hold, and they're just burning them left and right. Well, those descendants you had who saw that power and wanted some for themselves decided, you know, we can help them. We can ride in this wave of revolution, and we can just break free and have power for ourselves. We don't have to literally be a slave to this guy anymore. And those guys became the Anarchs. And the Anarchs fled, the Elders left to their fate, and sometimes the Anarchs killed them before they left. That started the Anarch, or excuse me, the Anarch... uh, or the, they call it the burning times, let's call it what it is, and or the Inquisition. The Anarch Revolt and all that. And then the Anarch Revolt is right in parlance with that. So in, in time sense, once the elders saw that their children were rebelling, they maintained hold where they're at. Because like you said, Ennui states that I don't want change. Mm-hmm. I may be so bored, I'm, I'm out of my mind, but I've, I've held on and clutched to my power. And so I will battle and punish these children, but I don't necessarily want them dead because they are bringing me enjoyment by rebelling against me. However, can't have it, can't stand, because I am competing with every other elder known and all these other fiefdoms. They see me, the prince, now weakened. And so the Camarilla is an organization that a group of other elders, a coterie of them, thought of, and they went around to all these fiefdoms and said, let's get together and talk. We see a way where everyone can get what they want. and we can end these mortals hunting us. And so they come up with this idea and they call it the traditions and thus the masquerade. And this whole pitch says that we hide from the mortals, but then we have to have an organization responsible for holding us all to these ideals. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of vampires said thumbs up. We'll do it. 
because we're not saying that we're, you know, just because you're embrace you or your say or everything, you're off the hook eventually. And we'll make that tradition the accounting, right? It's a, it's, that's a time stated process. When your sire says you can be on your own, you're free. No more anarchy. You're just on your own two feet in this organization. Mm-hmm. Well, of those anarchs, let's just say some of them went, no, no, I'm on to this. Now as a group, you elders are going to rule over us and lord over us, and we're not falling for it. It's not happening. In fact, uh, one of the most famous is uh, Micah Vikos, who at this same convention ripped off his, his literal manhood and whipped it at the elder pitching this idea <laughs> as, a res- as a response, right? And, and thus became Sasha Vikos and, and left, because he's a meese and he can mold his flesh like that. Uh-huh. And when he left... Everyone was galvanized by it that still had that fire in the blood and basically told them, we'll see you in the battlefield. Good luck with your masquerade. And that group became the Sabbat. Well, there were still other anarchs who said, I'm not crazy like that person, nor am I. I'm not throwing nothing of me at you. I'm also not living in your city, though. OK, I'm just going to go where I am. Somewhere is a place for us. And we just want the freedom to wake up every night and enjoy what it is for what it is. And mm-hmm. the camera said, well, you have a place with us. Just know that you have to obey the prince or else. And at that point, they left. <laughs> They're like, I don't know why you're still shouting rules this, bro, but we got to go. And <laughs> But the vast majority of elders who were there went, now we have an organization, and we now know the players in the field, and we'll act accordingly. Now, that was the Council of Thorns? Uh, the the convention. convention of Thorns. The Convention of Thorns, that's it. So that's when the Camarilla forms. And I've always looked at the Camarilla as kind of uh, of a – of a consequence or a, or a, a reaction to the inquisition kind yes. of like, you know, <laughs> we need to not be burned at the stake. Yeah. <laughs> so. very much. Uh, but uh, that scenario and that, that period of time uh, very much all kinds of other things were going on. You know, you have this inquisition, but you, like Bob said, the burning times encompasses, you know, childer, uh, revolting against sire, it has uh, you know uh, the this elder battling this elder. So there's all these things that are going on at that time, and finally it comes to a head. They have this meeting. It goes down like Bob said, and now you have your Camarilla. Uh, some people pronounce it Camarilla. You have this group that are dedicated to living or existing among the mortals in secret. We. Okay. We don't, we're, we can't lord over human beings. We can't reveal to them who we are because Inquisition, we did that and they burned us. Uh, so let's, let's coexist. Let's exist underneath the veil of, of the secrecy of what we are. Then you have this other group, the Sabbat, and they go, nah, we're not about that. We're, we're just going to do what we want to do because we are vampires and we're not going to pretend we're not. Mm-hmm. And now they exist in opposition of one another. You know, I had a question for you guys. I was thinking about this during uh, when I was listening to your episode covering the uh, the the player's guide to the to the Sabbat. And this is something I've 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 always wondered about actually because traditionally I've I've always played uh, part of as part of the Camarilla when I played. And uh, by the way. Uh, Bob, pronounce Camarilla the way that that one girl told you to. Pr- I cannot do that. Camarilla. Yeah, there you go. Yep. <laughs> it's not vanilla. Right. Exactly. Exactly. 
<laughs> anyway, anyway, but no, one of the things I've always wondered about with the Sabbat is, so I get there, you know, we want to have, we want to be free. See, I'm always thinking that, uh, the old, what was that movie with, uh, the guy from the Godfather? He was a biker, uh, the young rebels or whatever. Anyway, it's, cool. <laughs> I'm probably I couldn't not. remember it either. I'm just culpable here. I have seen that movie and I can't remember. We want to be free. See, we want to have fun. <laughs> Yeah, you understand. <laughs> but uh, you know, I get that they want to be crazy. They want they want to be vampires. They don't want to be pretending to be humans. They want to enjoy what they are. Uh, but at the same time, if they're and and I get now, I get from listening to your to your podcast. I understand that it's kind of a might makes right. You know, you can be free uh, provided you have the strength to back up being free. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. But how do they continue to exist? Because if they're just openly breaking the masquerade and flying in front of people and stuff, I mean, that's got to be ultimately detrimental to them. And now you're talking in reference to the Sabbat, right? That's what right, we're speaking of. Right. The Sabbat don't. <laughs> right. That's the thing. In a Sabbat held territory, their elders would crush them because you don't shit where you eat. That's right. the moniker. See, the, the, the beauty part about propaganda is that uh, it, it establishes a concept, but you don't actually have to follow it. <laughs> that, that's, that's the truth of it. It's do as I say, not as I do. Right. Mm. So that elder might say, in my domain, I will pick you up and hurl you through three walls and you take care of the fallout. I don't want to hear about this afterward. That's your punishment. You've incurred my wrath. Your pack handles it. However, if that pack decided to break the same rule, like you said, they're only going to live based on they have the strength to survive that wrath. Right. Now, that being said, they do believe in using that tactic of destroying the masquerade when they go to a warring Camarilla city that they're trying to take over. Because they know, and they bank on this, it's part of their strategy, the Camarilla is going to do whatever they can to preserve the masquerade while this war is going on, and it ties up their resources into doing that. So mm -hmm. the most crazy and sensational Sabbat packs you can find, these war packs, they're going to send at that city. And honestly, the Sabbat elders hope they die. They truly do. Right. We hope they die here because these guys have lost it. But we've built our sect on saying they're free to be that way. So that's why we keep them around. But right. they're useful so long as they're useful. Now, now one key thing, too. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Actually, I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You were saying something, Nate? I was just going to say one of the key things, too, is that as you look at this uh, game setting, you'll see that most often the Sabbat exist and control cities that are on the decline. They're the cities that are, they have more crime. Like Detroit is a great example. Mm -hmm. uh, from the fictional perspective, the Sabbat controlled Detroit. Well, you're way more likely to get away with a crime when you have vast swaths of area that don't have people. There's just no population or mm -hmm. the police are much slower to respond or where crime is much more rampant. So there is some give and take for that, but typically speaking, within a Sabbat domain, they're, they're not going to flagrantly rend the masquerade because that's where they live. <laughs> right. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. See, I always, and I think that is another common misconception with less experienced players, is they think, well, I'm Sabbat, I can do whatever I want. And... You know, in and and what you guys are saying essentially is they're not stupid. <laughs> exactly. 
Right. You know, exactly. I mean, they don't they don't hold to the masquerade, perhaps like the Camarilla does. Uh, but at the same time, they're 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 crazy, but they're not stupid. Right. Right. For sure. They're a sect that embraces those vampiric impulses and absolutely state do not hide them. And mortals are our food. That's true. But somehow that gets interpreted as free to do what you want. It's free to do what we allow you to get away with. Right. Mm-hmm. You'll you'll find that in the Sabbat, you have the very new and the very old. And the only people in the middle are the people that are smart enough to understand where the line is. Uh, because the, the very new, the very crazy, the very over the top, like Bob was saying, the elders are hoping they just go and die because they're, they're, they have such fervor. We're going to kill the Camarilla. We're going to do whatever we want. And that ends terribly for them. And those that go, ah, maybe a not so much on that. They end up becoming the elders of the, of the sect. There's a, there's a novel that I want to say is, um, it's one of the first vampire novels they did. It was a series where it was just uh, just a whole bunch of random stories these authors were inspired to make. And they tell a tale, one of my favorite, about a bishop in the Sabbat who's this gangrel in Detroit who is a savage. By description, he's, he's in charge for a section of the city, and he's known for his brutality, pure raw brutality. And he sits in this pile of mortals that are not dead, but <laughs> they're, they're being fed upon. He's, like, ripping off limbs. He's, you know... The first introduction is from this Templar, a newly appointed bodyguard that is supposed to watch out for this bishop, and that's a misnomer. Everyone knows that this Templar is famous for upholding the ideals of sect and defending the sect, and what ends up happening is, he's like, did they send me here to kill him or yeah. to or clean up after him? And, the, and the, off the bat, the bishop looks at him with this maw filled with raw blood just dripping down his chin most of it congealed in the back and the gums that you could see a lion's made of hair claws distended and it just sniffs him and it looks at him is like why are you here and he's like well my lord i'm here to protect you and and it just starts bellowing protect me do you know who i am he's like yes of course and i also know that those are 15 people that are going to be missed <laughs> and and literally this thing grabs him and stabs him in the chest and throws him to the side just to let him know who's in charge and he controls it and this whole time in the novel it's like this guy's gonna get it and i'm going to kill him but i can't do it publicly meanwhile from the person who sent him is the somber archbishop who's sitting there observing it and she desperately wants to make him the new bishop of the city needs to wants to elevate the Templar, but needs that thing gone. And no, she can't waste resources to just kill him because he is effective. So there must be an accident. And the novel culminates where where it gets to a point where this guy's like, he's going to try to jump and kill, I think it's an orphanage. Mm -hmm. Like he's so far gone, he's not aware of the time. And when he realizes there's a bunch of food sitting inside of a building, he's like, well, why am I wasting time hunting? I'll just go in there and slake my thirst. And this Templar's like, no, it ends today. Your your madness is over. And they do a great epic battle having it out. And then the Templar after it makes it look like some sort of gas tanker, if I'm correct, explodes. And that's what kills him. And then the oh. Archbishop comes in to save him because he's left out with all the police coming and all the trouble. And he's like, well, I die for my sect. Now I fall on my sword. Mm-hmm. And... And the Lysambra steps up and goes, no, little venture anti-tribute. Now you get brought into the halls of power. 
Uh, uh, and that's, that's a different perspective of the Sabbat that people aren't going to get thinking we're the thrill kill cult and let's just do what we need. Right. I think really uh, the reason why people have that perspective on the Sabbat is because most of them have only ever played the Camarilla. And mm-hmm. if you play a member of the Camarilla, you know, you're among the beautiful monsters. You're in the halls of power. But outside are these barbarians at the gate looking to kill you and destroy everything you love and, uh, you know, turn the city into a massive ball of fire. But that's not actually the case. Again, mm-hmm. that's propaganda. And as a player, if you've only ever experienced the inside, you've been convinced by the propaganda against the outside. So, yes. Uh, the Sabbat can be as political and as uh, as backstabby and uh, as any Camarillo game. Hmm. Well, okay. Let's let now. You guys have both mentioned some terminology for the Sabbat as well as for the Camarilla. Let's just cover real briefly. In the Camarilla and the Sabbat, you have a power structure. Now, the Sabbat may be all about be your own thing, do your own thing, you know, provided you have the ability, you know, the strength to back it up. But they still have a power structure. Uh, And in the Camarilla, you you mentioned the prince and you've mentioned the archbishop and you've mentioned Templars. Give me a rundown real quick. What is the Camarilla titles that 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 did that? basically designate their power structure, their ranking, their hierarchy, and, and what is the equivalency over in the Sabbat? All right, bud, which, which side of the fence you want? Uh, I can, I can hit the Camarilla here. Okay. You start with cam. I'll give it's opposite in the Sabbat. So in the Camarilla, you have your city is like your kingdom. So you'd think, well, then the head vampire in charge is the king. No, not accurate. He's the prince. He is the one who is the final decider of all, uh, he's the judge, jury, and executioner of the traditions. He essentially has the final say in his city. The Sabbat version. Sorry, uh, the Sabbat, <laughs> I was literally like, uh, okay, so the Sabbat version, um, you have what's called an archbishop. The Sabbat believe in a whole power structure to a city. It's very much organized, but they fall into this ecclesiarchy, kind of a Catholic example of it. And they do that because the Sambra is one of the main founding clans of the Sabbat, and it's opposite being the Zemis. And the Sambra handled for that infrastructure infrastructure of control and, and military thought strategy. The other half, the Zemis, handle all the spirituality of the Sabbat, that accepting your beast and how to change and morph into that. To that end, they're partners in it. But the archbishop is a is a prince. I want to state that. It's a fancy title that basically means the same thing. And why I say basic, it's control. It's the eldest, the one with the power. But that archbishop, different from the prince, has no consistory to answer to. There are no primogen that they have to take a knee to whatsoever, unlike it is in the Camarilla, because you only get to be archbishop as much as you have the power to be archbishop. Which is a great segue to talk about the primogen, uh, or primogen, however you pronounce it. Essentially, uh, underneath the prince, or uh, alongside the prince, you have a council of elders. And in most cases, they'll represent each clan within the city, uh, but not in all cases. Oftentimes, it's just those elders, powerful enough to maintain control, will reside on this council of primogen. Uh, they will 
often either advise the prince or perhaps work uh, against the prince uh, if the prince is uh, particularly aggressive or um, unfriendly with the the council or, or with the elders in the city. But essentially, they exist as a council to buffet against the prince. And to their opposite, you can see it this way, uh, you have bishops. Bishops naturally answer to the archbishop, of course, but unlike the primogen that can be their own ruling class in the camera that Nate just went over, bishops are appointed by an archbishop exclusively. These guys control sections of the city that the Sabbat are in, where the archbishop controls the entirety, right? And they control the city through these appointed bishops. Now, a bishop is a powerhouse, but they are not strong enough to be archbishop, otherwise they would be. To that end, they, they can be judge, jury, and executioner over the territory they have. And often, some some packs want to say they're just spiritual advisors, and indeed they are. And that's one of the important things about the titles, is that you can go to an archbishop on behalf of spirituality, but it better be just for spirituality, and you hopefully aren't wasting their time. A bishop, however, you would go to in terms of interpack strife. Like, I want to challenge my ductus, my pack leader, uh, to monomacy to rule the pack because I feel he's too weak. Well, my pack priests can't hear that out because they're, well, we'll just call them uh, opinionated. <laughs> they're going to have an opinion one way or the other. So you have to go to the bishop to get permission to take out one of the warlords, and they have to approve and make sure it's sound. <laughs> that's now, one the, thing. Sorry. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the official process for that. Not often the rule, but that's what they would like you to believe. Now, one thing you'll notice about the positions within the Camarilla versus the positions within the Sabbat, typically the positions within the Sabbat are more structured than they are in the Camarilla. The Camarilla is more malleable at these levels, uh, but the Sabbat is much more structured in a, uh, in a military sense. Like, you, you know, these positions exist and need to exist. Mm -hmm. Where in the Camarilla, the prince could say, ah, we don't need that particular position, or I'm not going to... Yeah, I'm not going to assign that to anyone or, or just never even make mention of it. Um, mm -hmm. But I think uh, another position um, that probably doesn't have a, a Sabbat correspondence would be the Harpies or the Harpy. Oh, now, right. typically, um, uh, the Harpies would be like uh, the rumor mongers, the people that are uh, the, the kindred that are in the know. These vampires, they they disseminate who's in the know, who's popular, who's on the outs, and they basically broker in uh, in favors and boons. They'll they'll know who owes who because with the Camarilla, it's very much a system of 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 favor of boon. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, I've misstepped, I've done something wrong, or I've offended someone. Well, now I owe them, and the harpies are there to sort of keep that keep track of that, know who is doing what, who's dressed well, who offended the prince, etc. Um, but uh, as far as uh, underneath the prince, underneath the primogen, or sort of maybe in line with the primogen, um, normally you would have uh, a brain fart. The harpies? <laughs> no, 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, the sheriff? <laughs> no, Bob, help me out. Yes, like I'm not. I'm trying to figure out where you skip underneath. Underneath the prince. Underneath the prince is oh, seneschal, right? Yes. yes. I'm sorry. I don't know what happened there. My brain just shut down. <laughs> you'd, you'd have the seneschal. 
Pardon me. I did have a harpy equivalent, though, in a sabbat. Okay. What is that? So the harpy equivalent of sabbat, it's actually, it's kind of hidden. You have mm-hmm. a paladin and you have a templar. A templar is like a secret service inside of the sabbat itself. They are okay. the guys who are going to go around. I mean, the Inquisition is really that, but we're going to stick with, with this for this example. So they're, they're the regional. Yes, a Templar can go wherever. It's a lofty title that an archbishop or higher would grant someone being known to be a troubleshooter. Mm-hmm. They will go and sort it out, no matter what it is, or they will protect what is most important, according to that archbishop in their in their area, or if sent from on higher, even higher than him or her. Now, the opposite of that is a paladin. Now, people will look at that and say one and the same, but what a paladin is, is they're a face. This is someone who is known to be just a badass, and they're there for that purpose of cooling packs out who think they're they're the shit, and they could do what they want. And it's like, well, if you believe that, there's the paladin. But at the same time, the paladin's also supposed to observe the sabbat and report it up to the archbishop or give edicts. And so in that function, they serve as a, uh, disseminating that of information similar to harpies, except the sabbat doesn't really care necessarily about the status of someone, because in the sabbat, you earn your status. It's not someone can have favor and just grant it to you. It's you have to have proven yourself in some capacity. And the paladin would dictate that and would let everyone know uh, on high who is a mover and who is a shaker. And their word as a paladin is what trusts that opinion. Hmm. Okay. I did not know that. That's actually pretty interesting. Now, to talk about the Seneschal, <laughs> right. that I brain farted, uh, the Seneschal in, in a lot of ways uh, is exactly what the name would indicate. It's the keeper of the house. Uh, the Seneschal is sort of the buffet between the unwashed masses and the prince. When you have a problem, the Seneschal is going to hear about it before the prince ever does. Uh edicts that the prince makes that are just not important enough for him or he doesn't have the time or the concern to come and give to you the unwashed masses is going to come from the seneschal uh in a lot of ways it is the prince's voice uh whereas the harpies can be that as well the seneschal is sort of like the mouth of sauron right the assistant to the prince (laughs) okay he's the he's the mouthpiece to the people He's he's he is the Sean Spicer of <laughs> yes. <laughs> he handles the press very right. much so. Now in the Sabbat, this is where the importance of packs come in. An Archbishop does have a pack. They're still a Sabbat member, and they're absolutely the ductus of their pack. Um, very rare where they'd be the priest, but depending mm-hmm. on how that's set up, and definitely for this example, the priest of the Archbishop's pack would serve as that type of seneschal. They would kind of see the city, the territory they have, as a wide version of the pack. And Bob, so, I, I am I, uh, I hate to interrupt you, but I am confused. What is a pack? Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> and so, what is a ductus? <laughs> okay, so what a ductus is is the leader of a martial pack. Now, a pack is a group of vampires in the Sabbat that stick together through a series of rituals. The most important of which is the Valdery. And what the Valdery is, it's a sharing of the blood that mystically unites every member and ties every member to the other in a bond of loyalty, maybe even love, depending on the strength of the bond uh, from that ritual and, and deeds and etc. Now, the Ductus oversees that pack, so it's not a thing of chaos. So if it's five vampires, the strongest is always going to be the Ductus, because they're the ones that say what the pack will do and what the pack will not do. And then there's the priest. 
The priest's role is a spiritual advisor. They watch their pack for people getting too close to losing themselves to the beast. Because that state of loss is called the wassail. Nothing can save you. Your beast is in control. You are a creature of instinct capable of eating anyone and killing anything. And that's of no use to anyone. So it's the priest's job, and often argued the most important, to make sure that the philosophies that are in the Sabbat, the spiritual paths, are laid out before these pack members, and to get them uh, in the right direction to find mentors to save them spiritually. Okay. And so that's the pack. So and the he, pack is like the smallest, the smallest u- group unit within the Sabbat. Exactly. The Camarilla has an equivalent. They do. Uh, they would call it a coterie, uh, although the coterie is way less structured than a pack is. A pack is, these are my brothers in arms. You know, think of like a biker gang. When they sit down at church to talk to each other, they're a pack. Everything they do is for the betterment of the pack. Within the Camarilla, you have a coterie, which is essentially a loose affiliation of kindred or vampires that have some unifying goal or goals that keeps them together. But there isn't this, typically there isn't this imposed ritual of loyalty. We're just vampires and we, we huddle together because, you know, I was embraced six months ago and I really need friends and you guys happen to like me because I'm funny or, or what have you. It's a, and I can, I can use your backs to rise up in the ranks. Right. And that's possible too. It definitely can be that. Now, um, from like a rules perspective, typically when you sit down to play a game of Vampire the Masquerade, most likely you're going to be playing a Camarilla game and your players form your coterie. So your players are going to figure out, okay, what ties us together? Why are we to, why are we playing this game together? What are our goals? That's your coterie. Your coterie is going to exist in this world, and they're going to buff it against all of these other positions. Um, and that, that's the major difference. Well, hey, real quick then, Nate. So mm-hmm. Bob mentioned what the Templars are. He mentioned what the Paladins are. What about the Camarilla? Do they have an equivalent to the Paladins and the Templars in a regional well, there, sense? there can be a couple of things that are considered equivalent. I think that the the most obvious equivalent would be like a sheriff. So the sheriff would be like the sheriff of Nottingham. He goes out and he finds all the things going on in the domain that are quote unquote wrong or working against the prince's edicts or violating the traditions. And he's essentially the law. He's the, he's the, the sword of the prince, if you will. Uh, And that sheriff is going to have deputies. He's going to have individuals that he, uses to suss out information that report to him. So he has his own underlings, but these are essentially, these are the lawmen of uh, vampiric society of Camarilla society. And they're the guys you need to fear. What <laughs> about the, the more regional for. Probably like, what is their FBI or their, you know, you have well, the, the sheriff yeah. working for the prince, but then there's above the prince in a, in a larger geographic sense, I guess you'd say, uh, like the circuit court judges. Right. So, so like the equivalent, <laughs> the equivalent to the Templar would be the Archon. The Archon is in a sense above a prince because he reports to a higher authority than 
a regional prince's rule, uh, but he is there to answer to the Justicar. The Justicar is, there's a small number of them in the Camarilla, six or seven, depending on when you're playing or how you're playing it. But the Justicars essentially are, they rule over the entirety of the Camarilla, as opposed to a prince who rules a region of the Camarilla. And those Archons act as agents for the Justicars. They will go where the Justicar needs them to go to investigate scenarios or Diablerists or whatever, whatever basically expands beyond a prince's ability to control. Or maybe he's committed some crime and that needs to be investigated. So those agents, those those FBI agents, uh, as we made that comparison, those would be the archons. They would come to the city to investigate, to observe, to uh, to meet out justice, any number of things. Mm-hmm. What about so, Bob? Is yep. there a ultimate leader of the Sabbat? There absolutely is. Uh, that leader is arguably the hardest position to obtain but you are the absolute biggest badass in the sect to get it and that's called regent and why it's called regent is again it's following a, an elected theme where it's interesting right i mentioned that power determines where you fall in line as far as high up you go the scale but you got to remember above the arch like well i guess that starts all the way back to the archbishop city right mm-hmm. an archbishop city is going to be governed several cities are governed by a cardinal and there's a consistorate of cardinals. And what it means, cardinals govern the entire, like if we look at the U.S., um, there's a cardinal for every section of the United States graphically. It's and like a regional manager. It is. And they answered, and these prince, excuse me, these archbishops answered to them. And the cardinal basically, again, is more spiritual advisor than anything. And he's also there as a checks and balance for an archbishop who thinks they're getting a little too big for their britches. In terms of, we could lose the city if this sick gangrel archbishop continues to butcher people every Friday night on top of the Fridays. <laughs> you know, once or twice we understand you get you have your rituals, but cover it up and calm. And he would come in and handle it. And that cardinal has to answer to a consistorate of Prisci, is what they're called, if I'm pronouncing the term right. Uh, the Prisci or Priscus singular. Uh, these also were once cardinals, but they're now seen as pure spiritual advisors. So whereas a cardinal governs a territory would have to get his hands dirty, the Prisci just mention, just just discuss amongst themselves what problems there are, you know, are we too monstrous here? Is it not enough over there? P- perhaps we're, we're manipulators who are now trying to govern what areas are getting dominated by our favored chosen packs and or archbishops, despite the cardinal who governs a territory. Because a Prisci cannot be a regent. So as a, as a body of, uh, as a group, though, they do have power. A cardinal can become regent. Mm-hmm. And, and nine times out of ten is chosen from their ranks. In the case of the regent, uh, like Melinda Gilbreth is my favorite. That's the one that was in print initially. Mm-hmm. Um, as a, as a full-bodied character you could read and, and get stats on. Um, she was a monster. And when she sits on top at the head of the Sabbat, she brokered no advice. The biggest thing she would do would invite the Pris guy in just to not take their advice and let that be an example to the lot of them. And they would sit there and, and literally try to wonder what she wants done. And what she wants done is the total takeover of everything. That's Europe and, and the U.S. combined. And the Cardinals were like, she's a psychopath. Prisca, we got to work together 
to, to help her achieve this because she is the regent and she'll kill any one of us. So, yeah, we're obeying you, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, in the in the meeting room. But when we're done, uh, we got to step it up and take turf. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's how that works. That's where that house of daggers comes from. But it's strange, right? Because in the Camarilla, you find that very early on amongst the princes and primogen playing those games. Whereas the Sabbat, that's not there. That's a military unit until you get to that archbishop level, and then the cloak and daggers, smoke and mirrors political scheme comes out. All right, and then you have the joint chiefs of, of staff. <laughs> right, right, right. But but Nate, what about at the Camarilla? Because it makes sense that the Sabbat would have a single point of power because it's a military structure. It's not a debate; it's a command. Right, right, <laughs> but, right, right. But in the Camarilla, how does that work above well, the prince? You know, is there a central point of of rule? Well, as I was saying before, we have above a prince, we have these justicars, and these justicars, they're not, they don't govern over regions. They just happen to be, they can, they go wherever they're needed. So mm-hmm. it's not as uh, codified as it would be in the Sabbat. You know, you typically have seven justicars, and one justicar would represent each clan. So, and, and and those guys, as far as you as a player are concerned, that's all you ever need to know, right? They're the pinnacle of power. When they come in, whatever they say is law. Prince be damned, sheriff be damned. We don't care. I'm a justicar. My word is law, and their word is law because they're decided upon by a shadowy inner circle. There's an inner council that decides everything. And that's all you need to know about them. They're just there. They make the decisions. But who are they? Eh, you'll never know. They if you do, sit in shadow. Right, right. They're, they're very powerful elders. And, uh, you know, as a player, you can investigate and you can find out information. But as a, as a player playing the game, you'll never encounter them. Uh, and if you do, it's because somehow you're now a Justicar. Awesome. You did a great job. But now you are you are ruled by them and they rule through you on down the line to, you know, Johnny come lately, 13th generation Bruja, who was just embraced two nights ago. Right. <laughs> well, that that oh, go right ahead. Bob. Oh, I'm sorry. There's two other factions in the Sabbat, too, that are unique to them. The Sabbat mm-hmm. is also rampant with a, a problem with uh, Diabolism. Uh, the diabolic, those who traffic with demons and devils. Okay. Part of that freedom to pursue is also the freedom to pursue the occult to its extreme. And demons and devils exist in the world of darkness, and the Sabbat have been plagued by them, and particularly at their spiritual heart, which is the city of Montreal. And what I love about Montreal is that it's not a city like Detroit. Like Nate described cities that were run down and what have you. It's very true when it's taken over, but Montreal has always been an ideal target for the Sabbat to inhabit. And in the beginning, the camera were struggling with them to take control, but by and large, it was Sabbat all the way. Hey, Bob, real quick. Uh, gentlemen, I'm going to take a break for a minute or two. I will be right back, okay? Yep. Sounds good. So, okay, so they, they've, the Sabbat have held Montreal. Now, that's interesting because I always thought it was Mexico that, that was like the Sabbat main. Uh, it, it is, but that's a Sabbat stronghold for military. Oh, all I things violent. And that's why Mexico's, you know, we know in the real world with all the all the drug running and what have you and just the lawlessness that can exist in their mm-hmm. barrios, not all of Mexico is that way, but the corruption is there. And White Wolf's dark reflection of it is because the Sabbat is there. Okay. They are there that, fostering these wars. Is that the Black Hand then that's down there? Uh, the Black Hand is down there. 
Um, and they're also in Montreal, though. They're not there in, in full, though, because when I say spirituality, I literally mean that. That up there, you would have your uh, your they're called nadas, right? These okay. are the it's a spiritual path where people are trying to epitomize the beliefs that Cain holds to be closer like Cain, the alleged first vampire. And indeed, the Sabbat falls an ideal where they're called the sword of Cain, that they serve his will. That's the propaganda they tell everybody, that we were never supposed to be as the camera has us, and we were supposed to rule over the mortals and kill these ancient antediluvians because they defied Cain. Big to-do religious feel there. And so Montreal, you would go there to get that history. And more than just the Path of Nod, there are several others. And that city is governed by an archbishop who is very good at holding the masquerade, maintaining peace amongst packs, because she lets them let their hair down within their own little territories. And that's the secret. So So Montreal's like their spiritual center. You got it. It's exactly what it is. It's a Sabbat playground, too, because if you're someone looking for a vacation, Montreal's it. If you're Sabbat, that's the place to just sort of reassess and get reinvigorated to go back to the war, as I like to call it, or at least as I see it. Now, this back to the Inquisition, their job is to find these Diabolists, commit them to an auto de fe, an act of faith, i.e. they're torturing them, to mm-hmm. find out who else is involved, who else is corrupted, because they know that it's cool to be Sabbat, it's not cool to serve the devil, because then you're still a slave. No. That's their big thing is freedom, freedom from a blood bond and a blood bond. Any vampire can do right over three nights. You drink a vampire's blood three times and you're eternally a blood slave. As long as they keep that going, you literally and love actually, that. Person. That's something I would uh, uh, point out to our one fan out there. So uh, <laughs> blood bonds are basically the idea that if you drink blood from, if you're a vampire and you drink blood from another vampire, three consecutive times within a space of an amount of time, uh, you actually, uh, it's like a charm person basically, but a lot stronger. Yes. Uh, you, you will do whatever that you, you will always see that vampire in the best light. You will, you will long to be near that vampire and you will long to do as that vampire, anything that vampire and asks and you're you to do. Haunted by him. I mean, the, they describe it in steps. Like the first step, they're a real likable person. You would love to hang out with them again. But by the second step, you can see just how deep this goes. You can't get them out of your thoughts. Like you may be stalking them on all sorts of media, trying to find out what they're going to do next (laughs) or what have you. And by the third, their voice haunts you. They're all consuming. You want nothing more than to be around them. Like just being near them, you're beginning to anticipate their wants, needs, and desires because now you're confused as to if they were yours all along or was it, is it theirs? And you yeah. don't care. You love them for it. Think about like the toady concept. You know, by the time you've uh, consumed that third uh, gulp of blood from them on that third night, now everything that they do, you need to be a part of. Any command that they give you, you would willfully throw yourself into. Uh, no act is too degrading for you because your love is beyond the natural limitations of love. It's now a forced slavery you're bound to them uh, unwilling to even insult them you know there's mud on the ground i'll lay over it and you can walk on top of me that's no big deal that's totally within my wheelhouse right and the camarilla makes strong use of this uh to to keep their younger generations in line but it sounds if i as i understand it the sabbat 
who abhor the blood bond, the idea of being a thrall to another person, but they, they use it, but they, they do it in such a way where you take your blood bound to the group, not to an individual. Exactly. And in fact, the Valdry is called chain breaking because it, it literally shatters any blood bond you had previously to any single vampire and you're reforged to a group, but it's watered down. That's what's yeah, cool right. about it. It's it's an established sense of loyalty, again, on a sliding scale, 1 through 10. And they give you guidelines. 10, you would die for this person. But it's not, still not the blind love worship. It's just, it's a forged loyalty. Right. It's and not it's slavery. Right out. Exactly. Because uh, archbishops are also responsible to do, like, they have what's called the octoritis rite. And these rites are the common practice sect-wide rites of, uh, of the Sabbat as a whole. And an archbishop can call one of these and perform a rite in city fashion that everyone participates in a Valdry with that archbishop. And this ensures a loyalty you know, amongst the established Sabbat members there. Yeah. Then there's ignoblis rite, and this is interpack. These are the rites that are made up to are made up within a pack according to their flavor, to who they are. And these rites bond them even closer by what they choose to do. So it's multifaceted. In a lot of ways, I consider it more insidious than just a normal out blood bond. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, it definitely keeps you loyal to your sect as opposed to just your sire. Right. right. And that's that's another major difference between the Camarilla and the Sabbat. The Camarilla don't really have a codified system of ritual. It's not really their bag. Whereas the Sabbat, they use ritual in the same way that religion uses ritual to enforce that loyalty, to codify uh, the the group to a common goal. You know, if you if you don't ever go to church, you don't ever participate in ritual, it just seems like something that's weird to you. But when you're involved with that, it's something that makes you feel more a part of what's going on. You know, those rituals define the sabbat i i would say more so than anything else the fact yes. that they are highly ritualistic yeah and it's also and this is kind of what i was getting at when i was saying a macro humanity uh because it gives them a higher purpose the camarilla lack that higher purpose they don't have you know even without the fact that the sabbat are blood bound to their comrades in their sect they they have this general guiding overall overarching purpose that the Camarilla don't have. Right. Right. The Camarilla's purpose really is will to power. It's just, we have power because we're old and we control it. And all of you, you get our, our scraps, you get our, our crumbs. You know, it's very, like I was talking about before, like it's very much like a King and those that serve the King, as opposed to the Sabbat, which are, we're all brothers in arms. We're, we're a military force. We have a goal and a system, and this is what we wish to accomplish. Within that, though, you still have uh, personalities that have completely different concepts of what should and shouldn't be done. So as, as codified as they try to be, you still have that urge towards freedom, that urge towards rebellion, and it very much exists within the Sabbat. Well, there's one more group within the Sabbat, and I mentioned it a little bit ago. Uh, and that is that it's it's almost like a sabbat within the sabbat the the black hand yes the black hand is the reason the sabbat doesn't fall the black hand recruits and trains the absolute very best martial killers and soldiers the sect has uh, 
tacticians, uh, occult magic that is destructive that can be used uh, to destabilize a city and bring it to the bring it to its knees for the Sabbat. Um, they are the ones who will develop these. Uh, there's there's all sorts of roles and ranks in the Black Hand. I mean, I could kill probably a another two hours on it, but we'll <laughs> simplify it by saying that their structure exists to where they have single killers that they call removers. These are people who would be tapped to go in and assassinate someone in a city and then just come right back. But their goal is to leave no trace. It's, it's always to do that. And these guys walk around the sect with all sorts of just paraphernalia like things. I mean, not just, not just like specialty daggers or what have you, but like magical mark tattoos, sometimes just actual tattoos. They do nightly that show the black hand because they're proud of their rank. It establishes fear amongst the Sabbat and the elders know, okay, of all the Sabbat, I think I'm commanding. I know I can't command that one because they answer to a higher power and that higher power uh, exists. When you got removers who report to a watchtower, uh, which is a title where they oversee a whole area of uh, basically jobs and tasks that they need the Black Hand to do, usually removers. And then from the Watchtower, they get their orders from a Dominion. A Dominion is the one who makes those calls on what they have to do and what is the right call. And so the Watchtower reports, the Dominion gives the order. Above the Dominion, they're the five seraphs. And they deliberately chose those titles on purpose. They're literally the angels of death. As far as I'm concerned, has to be why. Because pound for pound, the baddest vampires White Wolf has made is in the Black Hand. And they, and they sit up there. Um, and those guys have a military bent worldwide. As far as they see it, the cities the Sabbat have ta- they've taken are because those are the ones they believe the Sabbat need to hold to m- remain the Sabbat, to truly epitomize what they are. Like, if you look at what the seas had taken over, like, they assaulted the East Coast um, in in canon. And you wonder why they would do that. Well, considering that they have Mexico and Montreal, going more inward is going to be a hard fight to battle, tactic-wise. Because once you're landlocked, if you don't control all sides of that area, you're really taking hits from all sides. Right. And so these guys said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to control the railways throughout the United States. And then we're also going to control like some airports and then we're going to take over sea because if you're on a boat expedition, you can get to modern, modern, excuse me, tongue tied here. Modernly, you can get to just about wherever you need to, uh, by boat. And if it takes time and you're immortal, there it is. So they're and the so, special forces essentially of the Sabbath. Exactly right. If I had to make a comparison, I would say that the black hand is like the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, and the Secret Service all wrapped into one. Oh, They're, yeah. Yeah, they are definitely, they fit into that position of their spooks, their assassins, their bodyguards, their intelligence gatherers. They are, for all the rabble that you have down in your home packs, you have the disciplined, highly trained killing machines up at the top in the black hand. Hmm. They're the surgical strike, whereas the rest of them are just the mob they throw. They are just carpet bombing. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Well, now, before we move away from sex, there's one other sect that I've always found rather interesting. Uh, And oh, but before I get into that, uh, I do want to ask one more question from you guys, because I don't know this. And I'm taking advantage of my time to talk to you guys to get a few (laughs) questions answered. So, (laughs) and that is, 
a very often a very common theme you see uh vampires i guess especially from well from the sabbat saying of the camarilla is that they are servants or pawns of the antediluvians and earlier you heard uh you heard rob and nate i mean you heard bob and nate talking about the generations and cain had three and three had 13 and and that was the third generation and the 13 are are called the antediluvians because they're from before the noah's flood and so now that i've said that uh but I do often hear this phrase passed around uh, within the Sabbat, you know, a disparaging remark on the Camarilla being that they are slaves of the antediluvians. How are they slaves of the antediluvians? Well, they kind of are and they kind of aren't. Um, if you really think about it, if you work within the confines of the Camarilla, you are being controlled in some form or fashion by the elders. And for every elder you have, there's another elder that pulls maybe his strings and so on and so on. So to some degree, it is propaganda. Like, do the Antediluvians control the Camarilla? Probably not directly. But are there elders that exist that maybe might have some interaction with their sire somewhere down the line? It's possible. But the way that they see it is that anytime you work within the confines of a group that elders hold all the keys, hold all the powers, and and, and uh, basically decide what gets done and what doesn't get done, but even if you're not working directly for an antediluvian, you're still their pawn. You know, they, it, they look at it very much like, uh, like we would look uh, like uh, normal people would say, oh, well, uh, um, the, you know, the Bilderberg group controls everything or the Illuminati controls everything. It's very conspiratorial. You know, mm. there's there's strings. Yeah. Among, there's there's things going on here and things going on there. Is that the case? I don't know. Mm. It's, I, I kind of see it different on that because I don't think it's a conspiracy. I mean, you have Methuselahs who are the descendant. The like there are Methuselahs who exist even in print in the world who remember what their sire the antediluvian was like. Right, because and, they're and, the and fourth and fifth generations. Right. You got it. And in the case of like uh Kim and Tiri, I'm butchering her name, she's a Setite who absolutely knows what Set wants. And she to an extent is playing a dangerous game served as his lover or its lover, if that thing can love uh, for a time and then has just existed and is awaiting his return, but in the same time is doing her own thing. And that's the problem. When you have power of the blood at that level, who's to say what an antediluvian told that person? Only she right. knows. And right. she's done crimes against the Camarilla, right? Impersonated Justicar for a long time to end her a spot on the red list which is the uh, Camarilla's hunt, hunt them wherever they are list for yeah, the like entire organization. It's like the most wanted. You know, the, you, you're, you're one of the most wanted you get on the red list. You get a special spot. And when you think about that, you're like, okay, the, to that end, this is about a right. They can point at the fact that why is there so much violence in Chicago? Well, if you've listened to our podcast, and of course you have and others, you know that Chicago is controlled by Helen of Troy. That's that's the Methuselah who's pulling the strings in Chicago, but she's being contested by yet another Methuselah. And it's a Bruja who uh Menelaus who's asleep and he's he has his machinations and his plans still going beyond the centuries. And everyone else in Chicago is feeling the reverberations of that war, even though those two aren't duking it out in the street. And so well, the Sabbat know, I, says Go ahead. I'm sorry. 
No, go right ahead. I was I was just saying the Sabbats see that as the problem. That they don't have oh. any ancients pulling their strings. There are no strings to hold them down. Or they don't think they do. Correct. Because when you look yeah, at clans like the La Sombra, when you look at mm-hmm. clans like the La Sombra and the Zemis, and they claim to have uh, my our guys and as a pack hunted down and went into the shadow castle keep of La Sombra himself and held them down and diabolized them and, and that's what happened. You stop and wonder, hmm, what was what was La Sombra's main claim to fame? One of his like Cain given blood powers? Oh, the mind control. <laughs> the ability to effortlessly, by his own word, force you to do whatever he chose to even forget vast amounts of your own history. Okay, so you went there and you killed them and all of you have the same story, exactly the same, with the exact detail. And they and- loved it more than cats. They will see it again and again. <laughs> exactly. And that's how it is. And they're like, oh, we killed them? Yeah, to the smarter Sabbat, they're like, uh-huh. But did you? Right. Did you, you really? I mean, you did, but but did you? And then to that, you have the one of the greatest stories of horror ever told in White Wolf, and that's the horrible, uh, what is it, the after effect of Lombok Ruthven, who's a cardinal in the Sabbat now, because he knows what happened when Lugash Bloodbreaker, which is the Sabbat, well-to-do, well-known, all accolades laid on the Bloodbreaker, who invented the Valdry, who stormed uh, the keep of that of their antediluvian staked them and diabolized them. Lombok knows, well, he came in with the pack and then the, 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 the antediluvian ate them. <laughs> he literally stood up and ate them in horrific tendrilled, like, like the thing fashion is what I imagine happened. And then he <laughs> absorbed them and used their flesh to appear like Lugash bloodbreaker. And then he turned around and told Lombok, be a good lad and put his <laughs> finger to his lips and said, shh, and walked out. <laughs> And walked that. out. And then Lombok can't tell anybody. <laughs> he won't. He's literally like, uh, uh, guys, yeah, Lou Guys is awesome. That's all you need to know. Thanks. Yeah. And so uh, it is possible that the Sabbat itself is built on a pack of lies. And also the Camarilla is built on a pack of lies. But these lies need to be there to to maintain consistency, maintain the stabilization of these particular sects. So, yeah, there there is always someone in control farther down the line. Well, yeah, I kind of, I kind of think about antediluvians uh, and, and I'm really, I think the analogy works well with the Methuselahs to think about the antediluvians is actually not even to think about a traditional vampire anymore. I mean, their humanity is such that it's alien, you know, I mean, they, they are equivalent to the outer gods of HP Lovecraft. You're talking <laughs> right. and Yog Sothoth. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the fourth generation Methuselahs are more like Cthulhu and Cthulhu, the, the elder ones, you know, they're not outer gods, but, (laughs) (laughs) but they were around when the skies rained blood, at least the antediluvians beyond them. And how do you fathom that? Yeah. And, and it's just, you, you know, and, and I can, and I know like, you know, when, when mighty Cthulhu sleeps, his dreams still go out to, you know, degenerate swamp cults. And it, what's to say that, you know, uh, just because Venturu is, is in torpor does not mean that his dreaming is not, you know, his dreams do not go forth. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> So I I love that though about that's one of the things I love the most about vampire is this idea of the sabbat say we're not slaves well not that you know and, <laughs> exactly and, and there is 
But that brings me then to the third and smallest and probably least known about sect, which is the – anybody want to finish that sentence? The Anarchs. Or I was going to say the Inkanu. Oh, you're going to that angle. It's it's like more of a death cult. No, I'm joking. The Inkanu, yeah. the Inkanu are those vampires who know. They, I say vampires loosely. They're usually antediluvians, Methuselahs. Mm-hmm. They are those who directly are aware that there are things more ancient than them who are pulling strings, and they want to see where those are coming from. And so they like to be neutral from all that is going on and have the power to do so. They could remain hidden, or they could help if it grants them anonymity from everything else that's going on, depending on what you want to do with them. And then when you get closer inspection, that's a great and grand idea, but at its whole, you're just a group of Methuselahs trying to manipulate outcomes to an unknown end. Because Mm -hmm. they don't want Gehenna to happen. That's what they're fighting for. Because these Methuselahs banded together out of a sense of fear. That when the old ones wake up, to use your, your Cthulhu mentality here, when the old the ones wake up, they, right. Right, they yeah. will be hungry. And who will have the most potent blood? They will. They're the they first know who to go. their sires are. They know to be afraid. Exactly right. so. <laughs> and, and you know, awesome. the, the when the stars are right, I mean, that's pretty much spot on. Bob had mentioned Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is the concept of the end times, when the... The stars align, the great old ones will wake up, and they will eat everyone. And who's going to get eaten first? Well, probably the most savory among you. Um, so, Right, that, the most savory among you go first. Right. And those <laughs> are going to be... Those, flavor. Right. <laughs> I'm going to start with this prince and, and wash it off with this aperitif of an archbishop over here. Great idea. <laughs> Yeah, and but you did mention a fourth sect. So the Inkanu, uh, they're, they're, they were the third one I was thinking of, and I've always looked at them as uh, – now, but I want to get into that fourth one, but I was just going to mention the way I've always interpreted the Inkanu because I think they're kind of like one of those groups you can really interpret them in multiple ways and never of actually course. be wrong. Uh, and, and I think the cruelest joke is that they say – that they have risen above it because they have found Golconda. Uh, right. And in reality, because they are so, so close to the, to the third generation, they're probably the ones being manipulated the most and not even knowing it. Uh, I think you're very, I've always, sorry, mm-hmm. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, go right ahead. It's just, you struck something with me that you're right. I missed the whole Golconda aspect because in first edition, that's all they stuck with. Was that right. they know that the way like to peace. Insane. And then they transition that to the children of Osiris, which is the offshoot of the followers of Set, the opposition direct of that specific clan that they, I don't know why they did it, uh, but it's a group who saw Golconda as well, peace with their vampire. And then mm-hmm. it became, made more sense that why would it only be held to an Egyptian group? Why wouldn't any elder vampire pursue it? And then the Inkanu kind of, they gave it to them, but then they built something that I like to think they fleshed them out. And that's everything I've already said, but like, you're very much right. Yeah. And I've always kind of looked at it uh, like the, the way I, you know, if I get my campaign going again, the way I will run them probably is I, you know, that I always look at the 12 because supposedly they're ruled by account by like a council of 12 
Uh, and I, I look at them the way I would run them is that in, they're kind of manipulating both the Sabat and the Camarilla because the camera, both, both serve their needs. They want to see a, a spread I guess you would say a vampirism because they're going to need the fodder when the, when the third generation rises, but in order to keep things stable so that they can get that nice, large, you know, bountiful crop of kindred to throw at the, at the elders to save their own skins, (laughs) uh, they need the Camarilla to keep the masquerade in place so that the humans don't stake everybody in a, you know, in a fit of realization. So, so they kind of play them both against each other. And while in turn are played themselves by the antediluvians. And that's a very good way to use them. You know, I, I haven't personally used them that way, but I, I may, <laughs> I kind of like that. It's like who watches the watchers, right? Exactly. They think they're ultimately it's see, I always look at vampire like it's a, it's an onion, right? It's it's every time it's like an epi- it's like a season of 24. Every time you think you figured out who's <laughs> right, who's playing who you find out. Oh, no, that's that's an even crueler joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very much, very much uh, is the way that the game is presented. There's always something more going on. There's always more to find. There's always another dark secret. You just exactly. got to turn over the right rock. <laughs> What about the group? Uh, they're probably the most innocent of them all <laughs> because they just want to get get by in their lives, doing their own thing, finding their own path to keeping their humanity. And that is, of course, you mentioned it, the Anarchs. And where and do honestly, they stand amidst all these intrigues? You said it. You said right where they stand. Right. <laughs> I mean, you said it all. I mean, that that's them. They just want to be they're left just alone. Trying to make their way. <laughs> Right. They they uh, essentially end up being the buffer in between two giant monoliths trying to smash against each other. And you have these uh, these individuals, these vampires that go, you know what? We're not about that. And we're definitely not about that. So we're just going to do our thing and try to maintain some degree of cohesion. The thing about the Anarchs is that they're they're not a traditional sect in the way that they have a hierarchy. You know, typically you'll have uh, one or two individuals that preside uh, over a certain area, a small geographic area, and just try to keep things level-headed. Like, hey, let's keep our fights to a dull roar. Let's not go smashing up any storefronts today. And let's just exist. Let's Let's have a life. (laughs) Right. And, and uh, of course they're deeper than that, but, um, that I mean, at the heart, that's what they are. Yeah, I like what you're saying. They're just trying to get they're trying to stay out of these two monolithic groups that are smashing against each other. And they're like, I don't want to be part of that. And I know I don't want to be part of that. And there's no way I'm powerful enough to be part of that third thing. So- right. right. <laughs> I mean, they're they're called anarchs because at the heart, they they are kind of anarchists. They it's not so much that they believe in smashing the system. They do to some degree, but really the, you know, the power should be with the people. In this case, the power should be equal among vampires. It's, they, they don't believe in a prince that rules over them and, and imposes his will. We're just, we're people. We, we want to, you know, we want to exist. We want to be free from your rule to live our own lives as we see fit. I think that's very, very good. I, I, I like that. Now, 
before we dive into the additions of this game, I just want to tell our one fan out there about a great place to shop for this and other hard-to-find games. Like me, I know you enjoy collecting games, and I know that many of the games you collect out there are either out of print or just plain hard-to-find. And when you do find that perfect gem, it can put a dent in your pocketbook. So, I thought I'd tell you about my friend Chris Korchak. Chris is an independent book dealer who specializes in selling as well as buying vintage role-playing material. He's also an active member of the IOBA, Independent Online Booksellers Association, and the Southern New England Antiquarian Booksellers Association. And of course, Chris is an active member of the Dead Game Society. So, do yourself a favor and head on over to www.rpgrpgrpg.com and see what he has. Again, if you're in the market to sell or buy game books for a great deal, just head over to www.rpgrpgrpg.com. And if you go to his site and use the discount code DGS, you will get 10% off of your purchase. Oh, and one more thing. Chris is currently looking for bloggers, so if you have some ideas you would like to publish, shoot him an email at c-k-o-r-c-z-a-k at gmail.com but you know what let's then okay so i think i think our one listener out there now has a very good understanding of what is a vampire what is the vampire line what are the lines and how do they conglomerate to form something bigger they we have an idea of the politics the intrigues going on and, and basically all of that stuff that's happening that's great for understanding the end character of the game we're reaching towards the end of our show, but uh, I, I definitely think it's important to cover the game itself and how it has changed since its its genesis and throughout its various iterations, editions. Uh, has it changed a great deal? I mean, some games like Call of Cthulhu change very little whenever a new edition, although the new seventh edition supposedly is quite a departure. Uh, but uh, other games, D&D, change drastically with every edition. How would you, where would you put Vampire in, 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 you know, in, in between those, I guess you would say? Well, this is where it gets a little rough because they've had a lot of, why we'll start off with Mark Reinhagen. And I, I got the impression, you know, I don't know the story whole. I talked a little bit here and there uh, about their starting, but I, I focused on him because this is his brainchild initially. Mm -hmm. You know, he had an idea and he decided to put it to a book and roll the dice and voila, magic hit. And he had people who helped him out, obviously. And I think a lot of them were his friends, right? Helping him get along, get support, get going like most of those tabletop games start. And I think once it took off, it kind of got away from him in the form of just big, big companies coming in and deciding that your idea is good, but we can make it better. And we and we we see structure. We see how we can make it relate to other big name products. Here's the changes you want to do. Here's what you got going on. And if you're Mark Ranhagen, you're like, you know what? Um, yeah, go for it. If it's going to make money, and why wouldn't you, right? Mm -hmm. So, and speaking of those editions, the first edition was all about having just you understanding the art of storytelling. Like the first couple podcasts we did went over those startup books where they were big in telling you what oral tradition's about and how to tell a good story and get in the mood for it. And it's setting you with a good feel of what you're getting into. And that was very much him. 
And then it starts getting more of a corporate feel where you start feeling a lot of hands are just trying to make it on the level more of a neutral base, right? And that's getting into all the defined supplements, right? And so that starts happening in first edition too. But then there's some craziness involved. And we get into that in some of our reviews, uh, like the most recent one for Berlin. Uh, we point out a whole section where it was like, we don't know who these people are. And we don't know if this was intended, but we aren't necessarily a fan of it because this is a little <laughs> over the top, right? Mm-hmm. And then they jumped to second edition. And then, and you could tell where they were like, we got some strong ideas, but we need to change the structure of canon and, and have an established one and start kneeling in that direction. And then they start making those revisions to story. And they start playing around with the rules a lot more because the first edition, you could find rules for like F-16s and missiles and chainsaws and the like. You know what I mean? And then the second edition was like, well, since we're not controlling military strikes, let's, let's probably focus more on the individuals playing. And they get away from that a little bit, but then you still had a, sort of an item catalog going with it. Uh-huh. And, and then they have, you know, all sorts of supplements where like, well, we'll make a little storyteller companion to where the storyteller can be the one responsible for having all that. And we'll take the temp- temptation of more advanced weaponry from the players. And then it was like, okay, cool. Well, if we're going to do that, Another revision. Then you have, you know, second ed revised, where they're like, now we're super specialized. We've listened to our fans. We've we were with a new company again where they got rid of old storytelling talent, bought on new ones, you know, accredited people who definitely know how to make this all sing together. And then they redo most of the books. And then yeah, they start they, putting sandwiching they, supplements together. Yeah, they start uh, re-releasing and and um just from like a bare bones perspective. The actual rules of the game have changed very little. The, anytime there's a revision or a new edition that comes out, it's always been like, okay, how can we make this a little bit more streamlined, a little bit smoother? But like from the like roll dice perspective, it's been pretty much the same. Little tweaks here and there, but basically the same from day one to today. Okay. So if you wanted to, if you played second edition and, you know, you, you've been playing that for some time or you played that back in the day, I believe I played, actually, I started with first edition because I remember when the game first literally came out, uh, but I did play in, in uh, second edition. I, I, that was the last edition that I played in though. So I'm actually a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Somebody like myself who wants to get back in with the revised edition or, or the latest edition, uh, I'm not going to have a hard time. That is the revised edition. So go ahead, Bob. So the 20th anniversary is where they kind of, they did change rules, but you're going to know the vast majority of them. Is what it is. It's not like you said. It's it's minor tweaks, but it's all to streamline. Yeah, it's uh, all recognizable. So, case in point, if memory serves, I forget really the old way. I remember celerity being one of the most difficult things to manage from a storytelling perspective, and they had very much had to revise the combat rules and reassess and re look at exactly how celerity is going to work. And then once they looked at that, how does potence work? How does fortitude work? And celerity is a supernatural speed for the vampire. And mm-hmm. in a tabletop setting, and even in a live action sense, it's where your combat monkeys tend to go. That's, mm-hmm. that's what they want. More actions, more damage, more things to do. And they're right to think it, but at the same time, they were like, this just seems like a splat book ability to juice up a vampire. It doesn't really sing the supernatural speed. And so... In the in the first edition, you just had it as speed. Second edition, you tried to establish a story element to it, 
mm-hmm. with very little limiter, but then they were like, be, there was caveats, right? People were confused who would go first, who had how many dots to dictate, but then they said, you know, nope, it's based on speed. And then he had 20th anniversary edition that said, this is how it goes. Everyone's base round action is the same. It's the same. It's based on, like, you know, your wits and your decks and a D10. And you figure out what that total is, and your first action will go on that, even if you have five celerity. Because your celerity is going to come in between the next round. In other words, meaning that at the end of this first round, then the celerity rounds kick in as additional actions. And then you'll restart and refresh at the top in the second round. And that clarity was like, okay, there's your mechanic. But when they describe it, and this is for all the disciplines they did in the revised, or in the 20th anniversary, they breathe life into them. It's not merely just a mechanic anymore. It's more like, oh man, I really could break the masquerade, moving my hand so fast I could possibly deflect a bullet with my hand. Right here, here's uh, uh, what it is, and here's why it is. And you'll you'll notice as you go. So I'll just iron out for you the different uh, versions. There's the first edition, which we've completely covered already in our podcast. Mm-hmm. There's the second edition, which is where we're at now in our reviews. Then we'll have the revised edition. So it's not so much that it's a whole new edition, but it's little tweaks and and reimaginings and reenvisionings. And so for most people. The revised edition is going to be considered like the classic Vampire the Masquerade, uh, because once they released the revised edition, they actually ended the game. They wrote an ending to the game, and White Wolf moved on to a different different game. They created a whole new game entirely, and it's completely unrelated to what they call the classic World of Darkness. Then, because fans will do this... Uh, we demanded that they, hey, we still want more of those books. So like 10 years later, they put out the 20th anniversary edition or V20, which is like another, it's like a, it's like a fourth edition, but they don't call it that. And that's where they, you know, started releasing some new material for it. And that V20 book that Bob was referencing, that's where they made some, uh, some changes to the disciplines. They made some changes to the abilities, the rules. Basically, it was a fourth edition. And so now, uh, where they're at, uh, I guess they're preparing to release a fifth edition next year. So. There was a pause of like 10 years where they had no books, and now we've kind of ramped up. We, based on popular demand, they've they've come back to make more books for the, the nice. settings. Is V20 still in print then? Yeah. Okay. So the, the beauty part about this is with, through like drive-through RPG, you can pretty much get any book you want in PDF, and most of the newer books are available in print-on-demand. So if you want to get a, a V20 book and you like having that classic paper and cardboard in your hand, you can get one. They'll print it and send it to you. Oh, nice. That's very cool. What was the other game they made? They made Vampire the Requiem, right? That's New World of Darkness. That's yeah. where that's that's a different topic because Overworld yeah. of Darkness and what a lot of like the huge fan base is for, they got used to that style. And New World of Darkness, they went in a direction which, in my opinion, is very good. That's okay. that's like them in their groove. They under they melded perfectly uh, the concepts of being a vampire, but in something very much different than the old world. Yeah, they and get rid for, of the clans, don't they? Uh, they don't get rid of them. They simplify them. Oh, so okay. 
you, for instance, you know, your Ventru, as it's known here, is in old world is very regal, very dominating and whatnot. And that's, that's what they are. Um, they're not necessarily called to being animalistic. Well, the Ventru gain animalism. They get, in other words, they get command over beasts and men oh, in New okay. World of Darkness. And they give them that because that's what it means to be in power as their beast dictates. Mm. Now, from my perspective on this thing, and uh, I, I was talking um, uh, post-podcast about this last night, the New World of Darkness or uh, um, you know, the departure from the classic World of Darkness, to me it was these uh, writers and and game developers who said, look, we, we've had all this stuff back here that we have to revise. Like all the crazy stuff we talk about in our reviews, you know, you have to come to terms with that as you present a game to your players. And I think they got to the point where they were like, okay, let's, let's finalize this story here. Let's bring it to its logical conclusion. And that way we can refocus our efforts on creating a platform that we were completely in control of. We don't have to worry about getting rid of this, that, or the other, because it's not there. We can start fresh. And they did. And they created a really solid game. The problem is that fans, we have this nostalgia. We have this unwillingness to change sometimes. And I've, I've been a victim of it myself. And... It doesn't seem like it It really gained the traction that the classic World of Darkness had. And uh, be that as it may, based on fan request, fan demand, that's why they, uh, in my opinion, that's why they decided to go, all right, you, you want it, we'll make it for you, here you go. Uh, we're going to make it, but you're going to pay for it in advance. We're going we're gonna to make you kickstart it. Here you go, have some games, we'll go back. And, and I think that worldwide the fan desire to go back to this world this classic world of darkness world is really what's brought them back into the forefront to the point where they can make a fifth edition of this game hmm. okay I'll, i think that's pretty pretty awesome actually in my opinion and there is much more to the world of darkness obviously than just vampire there is the werewolf you guys have mentioned it already mage uh, the ascension werewolf the apocalypse mummy the resurrection they had a new one of that uh i i only know the uh the older one to be honest but uh but I think we're getting to the end of our show, and I do want to cover those at some point in the future, which is why I really hope you guys would be willing to come back on the show as my resident subject matter experts on other areas of the world of darkness. Absolutely. I, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> no problem with it. If you don't mind these these uh, <laughs> marathon deep dives. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. I just knew, though, that that vampire and, and in fact, a friend of mine was joking with me. He's like, you're going to cover you're going to try to do a deep dive on VTM. He's like, what are you going to have a miniseries? <laughs> like, no, I'm doing it all in one shot. We're drilling right through it. <laughs> oh, man. But I tell you what, though, to our one fan out there. You definitely, if you found this deep dive, and it may seem like this was a long episode, but then again, if you hung out for the Amber episode, you know that one was pretty long too, and so was the Battletech one. Uh, but, you know, here's the thing. We haven't even scratched the surface. So this is right. very shallow detail we have so far been able, because even in two and more than two hours, <laughs> These guys have de have devoted an entire show 
uh, <laughs> to this game. And, and so if you want to know more, if you want more detail than what I can, you know, offer in this episode with, with my friend's help, you need to check out their podcast and, and guys talk, tell us you have two podcasts out there. Now I listen to, uh, to your podcast for vampire, the masquerade, the 25 years, uh, and I love it. And I need to listen to nerd words. Uh, I haven't started listening to that because I can't stop listening to the other one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and thank uh, you for that. You're welcome. Thank you for that. Thank you for giving me material on my long drive home. But uh, tell us, tell me, give the listener, where can they find your podcast? Both your podcasts, where can they go if they have, because they're going to probably have questions also. So where can they go to reach you with their questions? And I take a knee to the master of media for that. <laughs> so the, the easiest way to find our podcasts is just to go to our website. Our website is utilitymuffinlabs.com. Uh, we do a weekly podcast. The reason why we're on here, the 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade. And then um, our other podcast, Nerd Words, we've been doing for much longer, but with not as uh, solid results. So um, <laughs> that one really, it, it's it's now it's starting to take off because we essentially, we do the review of the book on our Vampire the Masquerade podcast and then we do like our post podcast conversation on our nerd word so it's kind of almost like an accompaniment that here we're going to investigate the meat and potatoes of the book and then on our other podcast we're going to talk more on a personal level of how we've used the book or stories that that we have about the game uh that pertain typically to the book um again you can go to utilitymuffinlabs.com to check out either of those both of those podcasts are available on itunes they're available on stitcher we are available on twitter both under the 25 years of vampire the masquerade uh tag and utility muffin labs that's that's uh, our baby and that's all of our stuff can be found there on our website that is awesome <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for being on the show. And like I said, we will in the future be coming back around uh, to the world of darkness because I still want to cover uh, werewolf. I still want to cover mage. I still want to cover who knows, maybe we'll even get a chance to do a short episode on mummy and I can relive <laughs> the ability to break a crack a continent. <laughs> has, 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 Nate, has Nate told you about our online uh, vampire game we're starting up? No, I, I I heard about it actually on my drive home last night. I was listening to the Berlin Berlin by Night episode number twenty two, uh, and you guys mentioned that, and I remember in my car, I was like, "What? They got a game?" Yeah, we're uh, we're working on uh, right now finalizing all the details, but we're going to do an online role playing game. Uh, one of the things that we've heard from a lot of our listeners is that, man, I'd really love to play. Uh, I just don't have a way to get out there, and uh, you know, I don't have a group of my own at home, and so we decided, well, what's the next best thing? We'll just create our own online game. And um, primarily we're going to be running it through discord. We are heavily role play focused and um, uh, you know, so it's a lot of it's going to be voice chat, but uh, this is one of those scenarios where we're going to provide an outlet for you as a player to go on whenever you feel like and role play with whoever's there role play with the staff that's there. 
So it's going to be a it's going to be a big endeavor. But uh, if you want more information about it, definitely go to our website or check out our Patreon page. It'll have details on it. All that stuff. UtilityMuffinLabs.com to get more info. And I'll make sure that I put links to that uh, to everything that's been mentioned here. I'll have links to the Utility Muffin Lab site uh, and uh, in the show notes. So if you go to DGSociety.net, you'll be able to and, and find episode number 45. You will find those links as soon as I get them put in there. Awesome. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, Chad. It's been a, it's a treat. Honestly, it was a lot of fun. I had a blast. I had a blast. Yeah, it was it was really uh it was really interesting for us because you know, we've just been kind of tooling along doing our thing and you know, getting an invite to be on somebody else's podcast uh might sound a little silly, but it was it was quite an honor. I definitely appreciate it. Hey, well, you know what? Uh I'm just glad to have you guys on my show because if you go over to our Facebook uh group page, uh fans of the Dead Game Society, uh, which, by the way, one of our fans created because I would never have the chutzpah to actually say fans about my own group. <laughs> but no, we had a dead. We have a dead game society page on Facebook. But it, uh, one of the fans brought it up that you can't. Only I could post on it. They could respond, but they couldn't initiate conversations. So he created that page, and uh, I posted uh, about you guys after the first episode I heard. And which was episode one of 25 years of vampire, the masquerade. And I remember posting on it. I've got to get these guys on the show. I saw another <laughs> deep dive coming. <laughs> that's awesome. I really appreciate it. That's, really that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, all right, guys, I tell you what though, uh, my daughter is really, really wanting to go to the grocery store. So <laughs> you, you got to feed them, right? I mean, that's the point. Yeah, I know <laughs> my wife's, uh, well, my wife's visiting family in, in Japan right now. My wife's Japanese. And, uh, so she's over in Tokyo right now with her mother and my daughter is, has been left in my care. So, which means that like a gangrel, I have created her and now I watch her from afar to see if she will survive. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. All right. So I, all right, guys. So I tell you what, I'm going to end it as I always do by saying, keep playing with dead things. been listening to the dead game society podcast the dead game society podcast is part of the tsr podcast network if you've enjoyed this episode please tune in to some of the other great shows from the tsr podcast network you can find these at tsrpn.com <laughs>